Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast. This being our very special opening day Star Wars annual special, I guess I could say. We've done this now. I think this is going to be the fourth year, and on the line with me right now are two of the most popular guests, not just in show history, but specifically in the history of opening day Star Wars. First, let's go to New England right now. He is the host of Stick to Wrestling. John McAdam. John, welcome back to the program. Brian, thank you for having me on for the fourth time. It's been it's a it's a privilege. Well, we'll talk about some of those previous appearances in a moment, but also on the line right now, as I said at the top, one of the most popular guests in show history and someone who always steals the show here on Opening Day Star Wars. He is the Taskmaster, the Games Master. He has a bunch of different names, but we're going to know him as the Boston Battler today. Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Hey, John, if Brian says I'm stealing the show, it must be petty theft, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? Let's talk about a big topic here at the top. You know, every year when I have you guys on, we end the segment with me asking you, who do you think will win the World Series? Kevin, we've ribbed you in the past about the year you picked the Yankees and your beloved Red Sox won the World Series. However, the year before that, John McAdam picked the Houston Astros to win the World Series. Since that time, after all the accolades they received, and as well as all the pats on the back John McAdam has received here on the show, it turns out they were cheating. The level of which we still don't quite know. We don't know if there was a buzzer on Jose Altuve's chest telling him what pitch was coming in. But, Kevin, let me go to you. How do we evaluate the world championship season of the Houston Astros today and should John's accolades should all the credit he's received for correctly picking the world series winner be taken away from him or should we still acknowledge that he picked the correct team although they were in fact cheaters what do you think Kevin I absolutely believe he needs more accolades because (laughs) let me tell you something let's go to the 1951 season Late August, the New York Giants are behind the Brooklyn Dodgers. I think it was 14 and a half games. They won on a streak. Okay? And then famously, you know, uh, Jackie Robinson, the last day of the season, saved the season. They beat Philly. So they had a tie with the Giants, who came back from 14 and a half games, it's like the Red Sox collapsed in 78. Bobby Thompson hit a home run in the game. They lost the day before. But, you know, the famous shot heard around the world where Thompson hit that home run, you know. Uh, there is well, well-documented stories. They were stealing signs back in 51. Now, with the and that's when guys had second jobs. I think with the intensity, hey, John, uh, the flake gate, whooping through it all, haven't we? <laughs> uh, they even maybe said the year the Red Sox won, they were stealing signs. Didn't they have to give up a uh, draft choice? And they didn't want to make a big deal of it, I think. I think this has been part of the game. The guy who gets the second, he's picking off signs. 
I think Houston was a loaded team. Yeah, if you know it's coming, you still have to hit the ball. You know what I mean? I'll to give you an example. I went to Poppy's last game. I flew up. The last time he got up, I could have hit it. He dribbled it back to the pitcher. They they grooved this to him. The famous Mickey Mantle 500 home run where uh, Denny McLean, the last 30-game winner, told Bill Freehand to tell Mickey's coming down the middle. First one came down the middle. Billy, Mickey said, are you kidding me? He says, same thing. You know, he hit the home run, tipped his hat to Danny McLean after second base. Then Peppertone gets up and says, Am I getting the same deal? He <laughs> said, yeah. Kept them, put the McLean knocked him down. So has it been she eh, Okay, let's go back to uh, Ripken. The All-Star game, any of us could have hit that home run that he hit. Any of us. I mean, you know, there are things in sports that uh, science-dealing Holding, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a funny thing to me. And let me ask you guys this. We hold these athletes, these high, high standards, yet we let our politicians <laughs> do anything they want. I, uh, you know, whether L2V had the buzzer on doesn't affect my life. People that we vote for that go to Washington affect our lives, and we don't we don't scrutinize them as bad as we do athletes because I think we have this hero worship of athletes, and we still think it's pure. You know, like amateur athletes, pure. You see where the uh, gymnastic coach now is in trouble for sexual problems. Yeah, with the gym, uh, gym. So I mean, is anything, you know, the old rock and roll song? Does anybody really know what time it is by Chicago? I mean, I don't know if there's anything clean. Do you guys? Do you guys think? You know. I mean, uh, with baseball, there's always been an element of cheating, and there's different levels of it. There's right. the Black Sox, there's Gaylord Perry. Gaylord Perry's in the Hall of Fame. Right. Everyone knew he was cheating to the point where when he wasn't cheating, they right. assumed he was cheating, and he's in the Hall of Fame. Right. Guy does steroids, right. and they say that he should be excluded from the Hall of Fame. With that said, I guarantee you there are guys in the Hall of Fame right now who did steroids. So you don't even know. You can't. I, I, Go ahead, Kevin. I'm sorry. I didn't mean. I didn't know I was me. I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to agree with you totally. There's guys that they voted in didn't even know that they were on steroids or in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, so I mean, there's different levels of cheating. I guess with the Astros, the accusation is that it was widespread, that it was systematic, that everyone in the organization was in on it. Looking back now and hearing the audio when watching the video and hearing that trash can be smacked, it's amazing everyone didn't pick up on it at the time. Uh, yeah. 
That's a that's a very important point, Brian. If you're if the pitcher's about to take something off the ball, that's a really big deal. If you're the pitcher and you know you're taking something off it, and every time you're about to, you hear a trash can go off, you you fail the IQ test. But most importantly, Kevin said more accolades for me. <laughs> well, what do you think, John? Well, John Tufel, what do you think looking back now at the Houston Astros World Championship season, but also you're in New England. What's the coverage been like for the Red Sox? Of course, there were accusations towards the Red Sox. With the Astros, it was Cora and Beltran, who were two of the guys incriminated the most. Beltran lost his opportunity to be the Mets manager. They named him a manager. He resigned before spring training even happened. Cora is still there. What do you think of Houston? And then, of course, what's the coverage been like in New England for Boston? In Boston, it started off mostly negative, but when the story was kind of breaking, that's when the COVID thing happened, and that kind of washed it out of the news. Um, I think Cora, if I recall correctly, he's gone from the, from the Red Sox. Yes, he is. Oh, he that's right. That's right. Yeah. And they lost, and they lost the first round draft choice. So they they weren't really clean, you know what I mean? As bad as. <laughs> I hate to say it, they weren't really clean. And hey, Cora stuck around in the major leagues, and this is not being disparagingly to him. Not because he was the greatest player of all times. It was because he was a smart guy and could figure things out. He was probably picking up, figuring out how to pick up signs when he was playing for the Red Sox back in the day and every other team he played for. So uh, there are some, but I agree with John. If I'm on the mound, and like he said, taking something off, this wouldn't happen back in the day with Juan Spanos, Sal Bagley. Uh, you know what I mean? You a guy, a trash can keeps going off every time you're taking something off a uh, pitch. You got to be an idiot, don't you? But is it because did they get? Have we gotten to a thing where baseball is still the American pastime? And of course, they're not going to cheat. And it, it, when you look back at it, it's like to me, and I don't mean to be dis, disrespectful, but it's like when the Kennedy assassination happened. They said a lone gunman until until years later you look at it and say, "Well, what a story that was." Well, I think it's the same thing. I mean, the, I mean, it, it was there in front of us, especially when they want to rip his shirt off, and he grabs it like it's the Holy Grail. Altuve, uh, <laughs> yeah. When they rip it, he grabs it like a Holy Grail, and you see his eyes; they look like. Uh, Popeye's eyes on the old cartoons thing. Uh, yeah, uh, but I don't think you can take anything away because I'm a firm believer. It's the hardest thing in the world to do. You, if you feel, think about this. If you feel seventy percent of the time, and you play for 15 years, you have a very good chance 
of going into the Hall of Fame. That's right. That means you're a lifetime dangerous hitter. So even if he knows it's coming, he has to be. And it, it isn't like Altuve was, uh, looks like Mike Trout. You know what I mean? Funny story. Uh, years ago, after uh, Pedroia won, won the uh, MVP, my oldest one and I go to open the game. My youngest one took me to uh, spring training. And she knows nothing about baseball. My oldest one is pretty knowledgeable. My youngest one says to me, oh, isn't that nice letting the bat boy play second base? <laughs> I said, okay. So with Altuve, you know, he's a remarkable player, and especially for his size. So, yeah, I can see it both ways, but for, for John to pick it that far ahead, nah, I didn't see it coming. And I don't, I don't think the cheat. I think they would have won with or without the cheating. And we really can't say, like you know, what other teams were and were not cheating. I mean, and you know, going back to the '80s. I mean, I played high school baseball in high school, and the pitchers would scuff the balls. I personally experimented with a loaded bat. So I mean, it just goes on. Yeah. Do you remember? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm having a brain fart. Uh, Sammy Sosa. When he oh, hit yeah. the home run with the quarterback. Yeah. Oh, I uh, took the bat up by accident. Well, how many accidentally did he pick up when he was hitting 60 home runs for three seasons? You know, uh, I just don't. Yeah. yeah it, I think some of this, too, is... It's a good way to keep sports in the news, and it's a good way to cause a controversy. It's like back in the day in boxing with split decisions and probably in MMA now when they have uh, questionable decisions. When I was a kid, boxing was big in Boston. You know, it, they had a there was a promoter called uh, Sam Silverman, and he had a show every uh, month. I saw Frazier fight there before he was champion. My cousin, Tom McNeely, who fought Floyd Patterson, I saw him fight uh, George Logan, and he got what they used to call a Boston decision. There was a lot of fighters that wouldn't go into Boston to fight a, a local guy because they knew all, all the guy had to do was stay away from him for 10 or 15 rounds, and they got the decision. So... I mean, controversy is part of sports, don't you think? I think so. And the more so. we build it up, the more we talk. Yeah, and the more we talk about it, the more we build it up, the more we're interested in it. Now, if 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 we did, if we do have a season, we're going to be more aware and listen to see. Hey, did you hear that trash can? I swear to God, I heard that trash can. You know, the the, the Yankees are doing it, or you know. You know, it's like when the catchers started taping their fingers, you know, uh, and then they went to doing their nails. Do you remember that season yeah. where they said it was too easy to pick up? Then they were painting their nails. I mean, it's part, and I think that's the intriguing thing about sports, the controversy. You know, you bring up the cork uh, again, bat. 
And I, I recently was thinking about Albert Bell because that's a guy who yeah. was destined to have a great career. His hips went out on him, and I think he retired after maybe the 2000 season. And he probably would have been an MVP at one point if the writers actually liked him, if he wasn't just such a surly guy. But there was a famous scene. It may have been in the playoffs, now that I think about it. It may have been either the 95 or 96 playoffs. Of course, 95, the Indians went to the World Series where they accused him of corking the bat and you see him in the dugout pointing to his bicep saying, no, it's this, this is what's doing it. Yeah. I remember that. I, I, I remember that uh, pose in the dugout. He doesn't have his hat on and he's shown pointing to his bicep and they were huge. They were huge. He might not need the cork bat because his arms were corked. That's for sure. John, you used a cork bat or a loaded? Like, what's the difference between? Was it corked or was it? You said a loaded bat. What, what did you use exactly? It was, it was an aluminum bat, and someone like jammed a bunch of tennis balls in it, so the ball would like jump right off the bat. And the end result was that my line drive singles turned into flyout. <laughs> I stopped using it, <laughs> and I was told more than once that look, get used to it. You'll be putting it over the wall. And I was like, you know, no, I don't have time for that. So I stopped using it. But yeah, it was an aluminum bat with uh with tennis balls jammed into it. Let me ask you guys about some of the new rules this year because I'm uh I'm conflicted on it. The first one is in extra innings now, in order to speed up the game, apparently, the team that is at bat will begin the inning with a runner at second base. What are your thoughts on this? John, let me start with you. Um, That one, I do not like. That sounds very, feels very gimmicky. I personally, and a lot of people are, are not going to like what I'm about to say. I think if a baseball, I've always thought this, if a baseball game goes into extra innings, it should be over by the 12th inning. And just to clear the game a tie, I know that defies a lot of baseball uh, history. Uh, but I think it's a, the smart thing to do. No one wants to sit through a 15-16 inning game. It messes up the teams as far as their uh, their pitching staffs go, messes up their bullpens. That is how I would deal with it. I know what I said is, is going to be very unpopular, but yeah. damn it, that's my opinion. See, I like extra inning baseball. I've seen so many classic games go into extra innings. Uh, being a Met fan, the famous Rick Camp game in 1985, the 1986 game in the playoffs against Houston. I mean, there have been, you know, game six against the Red Sox in 86. That was extra innings as well. If you start with a runner on second base, why wouldn't you just put up someone to bunt? Um, I personally yeah. wouldn't do that unless, well, unless I was on the bottom of the inning. That's a good point. But yeah, I, I, if I was the top of the inning, I wouldn't do that because you're, you're sacrificing an out just to put the guy in third. Kevin, what do you think about starting extra innings with a runner on second base? First of all, baseball is the only sport without a clock. Uh, you know, I, 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 as much as I like baseball, I've sat through some long Red Sox Yankee games. It seems to go on and on and on. But I think then if you're going to start doing these kind of things, then throw out all the record books and throw out stuff like that because you start on second, it changes the whole format. But, you know, at first when, John, when you said, you know, the tie, I didn't like it, 
because I'm saying a tie in baseball. But you know what that would probably end up doing, and I do like it now that I'm thinking about it, would probably end up where you get to a game where you had to win because if you went to a tie, you wouldn't win the division. You know what I mean? I, I do see the, uh, you, and you're absolutely right about saving the bullpen because, you know, this isn't back in the day. These guys get paid big money to come out and pitch the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. And once you get into those long 15, 16 inning games, it does mess up the rotation and the bullpen for at least a week. So I like that idea, but I don't like the idea of starting with a second a guy on second. You know, let me just throw something out. Let me just throw something out at you. I do you think that if, like I said, do you think that if you did the end of twelve innings, you call it? Do you think that would be a chance to have more? Tension at the end of the season because, okay, I've won, uh, you know, it's it's 162 games. So now there's only five games left, and we'll say it's Toronto and the Yankees, and uh, the Yankees are leading by four. So you almost have to win the whole. Thing out for Toronto to have a chance, and hopefully the Yankees lose. I think it would create excitement if there was a tie. I like that idea much better than the guy starting on second. I'm not crazy about it, but the more you two talk, the more you're convincing me that it would at least not be the worst thing in the world. It would create some tension at the end. Let me ask about another new rule. Kevin, what do you think about the idea that we're in an era of specialists, of lefty specialists, guys brought in specifically to get one guy out. What do you think about the idea now that relief pitchers have to pitch to a minimum of three batters, I think unless they end the previous inning, and then they could do one guy and leave before the next inning, but anyone who comes into an inning has to face at least three batters in the inning. What do you think of that? I don't like it. Uh, here's the thing. There are guys who pay money to get you out of a position for one batter. He throws 100 miles an hour, or he has this crazy fork ball, or he's Mario Rivera with one pitch, or whatever. I don't think that because they want to speed up the game, that's going to make a difference. I mean, I think they've gotten off the point of Enjoying the game. And first of all, you go to the game now. People are on their phones. They're looking at the board. There's very few what I call real baseball fans like the three of us. Kevin, you sound like me. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, I, I, you know. I, I go to the games, like I said, uh, I, I lucked out. I got friends that work for the Red Sox now, so I, I had some incredible seats uh, for the last time I went. But I'm looking over, and 
<laughs> there's a guy, I don't think he ever, if he looked up at the field five times during the game, I'd be surprised. He's on his phone. He's drinking. He's talking to friends. You know, he'd look up when a ball got hit. And that was it. I don't think we're, we're going to sacrifice the intent. And the, remember when Papelbaum was the guy for a while for the Red Sox? Oh, yeah. He comes down. Like, oh, you know, he, he's going to close out that inning. And, you know, Chapman comes in. You know, oh, I don't want to see that mystique. It, it, you, you know, that's like a, it's like it's like making a superstar in wrestling. His entrance music comes in. He comes in. He's slamming the ball in his glove. The, you can see the batters are intimidated. He throws that first thing at 100 miles an hour. The people explode. There's elect, electricity and excitement. Now he's going to come back out. And uh, nah, I don't, I don't think it at all. I don't think it at all. If I, if it's going to affect me that much, an extra fifteen minutes, I don't, I don't should be going the game. I was going to say I'm going to steal one from Bill James. Baseball used to have a clock. It was called the Sun, and what, you know, so umpires <laughs> would keep the game moving as much as they could. And now the game, I think. It, it goes at such a painfully slow pace, and I, I would like to see something done to, ke- to get the game kept moving along. John, let me ask you something, and Brian, you also. My, my, my thought is, you know, as much as Poppy's been my favorite ball player, okay, for all times, but Christ's sakes, I could have uh, a foot-long sandwich eaten every time he stepped out of the box. They got to keep them to a minimum, you know. And Derek Jeter, as great as he was, sticking his hand up like he's a traffic cop. Wait, wait, wait. I got to get ready. I mean, think about that. You You know, I'm mixing errors and you can't do it. But if he stood up in front of Sal Magley and put up his hand... His ass would have been in the dirt. Lou Burdett, you know, guys <laughs> that threw at you. I mean, it's a different it's a different era because no one wants to get hurt because and nobody wants to hurt anybody, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, I, I I think they did the right thing when they put the po- posy busters rule in. Because when I did play, I was a catcher, and brother, there's nothing un- more undaunting. They're watching some big monster coming down the line and you wait for a ball coming for a weak throwing center fielder or a right fielder. And, you know, your back is turned. You can hear his footprints coming down. But uh, I, I think John made a great uh, steal of plagiarism from Bill James, I remember when the umpires used to make them, come on, let's go, keep going. So, son, that's a great idea. I mean, keep this. I think, do you think we have, I'd like to know, back in the day, how much difference was the pay between an umpire and a middle-of-the-road ball player? Was it 
like it is today, where they're almost afraid to upset these guys. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? You know, a lot of it too is they're afraid they're afraid to upset the commissioner's office. You know, I mean, that's one of the issues where you go back and you watch any footage of the Braves in the 90s, of Maddox and especially Glavin, and look at how they were able to expand the strike zone. You can't do that anymore because an umpire is so afraid they're going to get in trouble from the, I was about to say the league office. It's just one office now. I guess it is the league office, just not National League and American League. They're so afraid they're going to get in trouble from the commissioner's office that they're trying to have a strict strike zone. Like to that other point, you know, you talk about how there used to be a clock. It was the sun and other clock used to be if the umpire had a flight. All of a sudden, everything's getting called a strike at that point. The umpires are very afraid of, I don't think it's as much the players and how much money they're making. I think it's the commissioner's office really coming down on them. I mean, there are some bad examples. I remember the 96 playoffs, Levon Hernandez, Eric Gregg was the umpire. He had the strike zone literally three feet off the strike zone. He was getting called strikes and the Braves are losing their minds. I mean, they were guilty of it with Glavin and Maddox for years, but it was never this egregious, but everything was called strikes. You couldn't get away with that today. The umpires are too afraid of the office. Yeah. Yeah. No, Kevin was talking about guys taking too much time uh, in the batter's box. And I I completely agree. Uh, Back in the 70s and 80s, there was a player, Mike Hargrove. They called him the human rain delay. Because he took so much time. Now everyone's the human rain delay. Yeah, yeah. Hey, and think about Noma, the, the little act he did. <laughs> That's you, right. Oh yeah. Can you say Rayman? Can you say Rayman? God, I mean, to me, uh, again, I don't go to the ball game and say. Boy, I hope I'm not, if I go to a night game, most of my night games now, but if I go to a night game, I I, I hope I don't say I got to get out of here by 11 o'clock. Really, at that time, what's the difference between 11 and 11.30? And usually, if the scores, how many times, as much as the three of us love baseball, uh, if you go to a game, and the home team is losing by six runs, and it's the bottom of the eighth. You'll lose it. You ain't sticking around. You know what I mean? Unless you just want to see somebody the last time. My rule is I stick around to the ninth inning no matter what. To the end of the ninth inning no matter what. Good, good, good. And that's the way it should be. But, I I mean, they're talking about we got to speed this up. For what? For people? Which, which I said, the three of us like baseball. I, I even said to you, I, I, I'll leave sometimes uh, when it's – and I left one time when the Red Sox well, – was, I was out here. The Red Sox were killing the Mariners, and I, they were up by like six runs. And the thing with me is – I got to catch a ferry, and if you miss the ferry, it's an hour wait. And in the summertime, with the traffic, it could be a two and a half hour, three hour wait. So I said, "Let's get out of here. We're up by six runs. The Mariners aren't coming back. I'm racing to to the ferry dock, and all of a sudden, the Mariners come back, and I miss the game. And I thought I'd never do that again. But you know." 
they do need to speed it up. And, you know, we're coming up with ideas, but I thought about this. They got guys like Bill James and everybody got an analytical guy. They can't come up with something that will appease everybody. They're not doing their job. It's good enough. Another new rule introduced this year, and um, I this is one of the ones I'm very, very hesitant about. And I know John thinks the opposite of what I think. Kevin, I'm curious what you'll think. Is Universal DH. The National League, which has always had a unique style of baseball, specifically since the DH was introduced, will now have a DH. It helps my team. It helps the Mets because we could have Cespedes in there every day without playing the field. But I don't know how I feel about it. I don't know how I feel about how that changes the strategy that the managers in the National League have. Kevin, what do you think about Universal DH? I hate it. I hate it. Good, me too. And my favorite player of all time is Big Poppy. That's a paradox, right? No, it's not a paradox. I like the two differences of the leagues. It's it's the last vintage of when there was a rivalry between the American League and National League. I like the different play of the National League. I like... Uh, I mean, not that I don't like the American League. I like to be able, if I go to, uh, back in the day, and I, I when I was with TBS, I would go to the Braves games. And I loved to watch them play because it was a different game. Small ball, you know, late in the game, don't make a walk. Uh, it, it, I just like that it separates the leagues. and. It gives us something to be talking about like today. I mean, are we going to, is everything going to be, and it's going coming that way. I shouldn't say that is everything going to be. I remember the first time I went to Singapore to wrestle. They gave me a special dispensation because my hair was too long. They made me an entertainer. I couldn't wear blue jeans on the street. <laughs> I went to, yeah, I went to uh, Singapore. You know, it's a small little island country. I think there's 2.6 million people. And I'm walking around and the architect is magnificent from the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s. Magnificent. Next time I come back, it's steel, it's glass. I land in the airport. The airport got aviary in it. Birds are flying all around. I mean, it didn't look like the same country. And and I I walked down the street and I see a McDonald's and a Kentucky Fried Chicken. I about puked. I mean, can't some does everything have to change? I mean, I'm I'm not against change, but. I like to hear John if he's taking the other side. Why you like it, John? Well, Kevin, I I like it um, for a lot of reasons. I think it's I think it's better baseball. I I know there's kind of a novelty when the pitcher comes up to bat and pitchers as a whole. I think last year hit like 120, and to me that that's just not enjoyable baseball. Um, I would rather have a guy who 
it does what he does well as opposed to having a pitcher hit. I just didn't never found the pitchers hitting to be entertaining. Okay. Well, what about Bumgarner? Uh, Madison? Yeah. The guy from the Giants, yeah, he right? Pinch hits he, yeah, he pinched sometimes. Yeah, I mean, there's there's always going to be that one exception to the rule. Uh, Ken Brett was a really good yeah. hitter. They've been uh, Tim Lawler was a really good hitter, but like I said, they're Juan they're the exception. Yeah, yeah, I see, I see. Yeah, Babe Ruth was a pretty good hitter too. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, here's a funny. Warren Spahn can shit sometimes for Eddie Matthews, another Hall of Famer. There's a little thing that you guys probably know. There's less third basemen in the Hall of Fame than any other position. Were you aware of that? I just became aware of that. No, I've kind of known that for a while. That was part of the big push to get Ron Santo into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. What do you guys think of Ted Simmons going into the Hall of Fame? Well, it was supposed to be 2020. I guess they're going to push it back now because of COVID. But do you think Ted Simmons is a Hall of Famer? I I think Kevin, I can accept Ted Simmons in the Hall of Fame. He was a really good player. He had the misfortune of being in the the second best catcher in the National League, while Johnny Bench, the best catcher in uh, National League history, was active. I think he's a guy that could go either way. So that means that I would not personally put him on my ballot. But I think he definitely has a strong argument. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm strict when it comes to Hall of Fames. I'm the guy who flipped out when they put uh, Harold Baines in the Hall of Fame. That was ridiculous. I don't think Simmons is ridiculous. Uh, I'm Brian, I'm with John. It's not the Hall of Very Good. It's the Hall of Fame. Uh, if he goes in, it, it, you know, it, it ain't going to flip me out. And I agree with you about the Harold Baines thing. And a lot of it is, you know, uh, the other thing is guys that have this longevity, 22 years or something, and it, it looks good, but it took them 22 years to do it. Uh, I think the criteria is getting a little soft. I think it needs to be toughened up. And I'll tell you something, and this is going to piss off all my friends. Jim Rice was the most feared hitter in his era for about five or six years. To me, he's borderline Hall of Fame because, you know, yeah, yeah, he wasn't the greatest with the glove. And... Uh, I just think I'm glad he made it, but it's like that Simmons, Ted Simmons. I wouldn't have voted for Rice get in, but it doesn't bother me that he's in, and I'm glad he's in because he's a Red Sox, but there could be a case for other guys like, I mean, let's think about Carol Baines is 
you know, he was, was on the ballot so long, right, that he just kept on getting a little bit more traction. It's like, uh, who's the, I can see him now. He pitched from Minnesota. Uh, he, Jack Morris. The Dutchman. No, the Dutchman. Oh, Burp Lylevin. Yeah. Do you think it was... Did he make it to the Hall of Fame? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But do you think it was that that it isn't him? It's the guy that pitched for them when they were back in the late 60s when Kilbrew played. He's Jim Cotton. Uh, yeah. yeah. He, he hasn't made it, all right? He didn't make it. No, yeah. And there's a lot of people... A lot of people think he should have when Bert, Bert went in. So I think it's because, too, sometimes they're giving, they're recognizing that these guys were very good for a very long time. And I do appreciate that. But, you know, Hall of Fame, and Reggie Jackson said it, it it's not the Hall of the very, very good. It's the Hall of Fame. So. But I, I, I think Simmons, yeah, he, yeah hey, you, how'd you like to have to follow Johnny Bench? Pretty tough. And Gary Carter was right after that, too. Yeah, yeah. What were you going to say, John? Oh, it was actually a special committee that put Harold Baines into the Hall of Fame, which makes it even worse in my eyes. And as a lifelong Red Sox fan, I also did not think that Jim Rice belonged in the Hall of Fame. I think he was a well, very overrated well, player. He was terrible defensively, uh, very overrated defensively. He had a really good first part of his career, but the second part, um, you know, he he hit a lot of home runs, but that's all he did. He hit into a spectacular number of hall of double plays, and I, I you know, like I said, I, I can I interrupt you, John, real quick. Yeah. Has, did he hit in the most double plays every season he played? I think he did, didn't he? Either either he was in the lead or near the lead, especially as his career went on. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm glad you backed me up on that one. Yeah, and we talk about defensively. At the end, he was phoning his performances in, I thought. Kevin, thank you. I agree 100 uh, percent. Right around the mid 80s, Rice looked like a guy who was just showing up and collecting paychecks. The whole team looked like that for a while. Right, right, right. I want Keith Hernandez to get in the Hall of Fame. That's what I'm waiting for. And Gil Hodges. Of course, I'm a Met fan, so I'm a little uh, jaded what? here. But I think both guys, especially Hodges. How could Hodges not be in there? Everyone else in that lineup is in. He had more home runs than anyone in National League history when he retired. I, I, he I don't have his numbers in front of me, but I don't think Gil Hodges is a Hall of Famer. I'm sorry, Kevin. Go ahead. I didn't mean to. I, 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 I got to disagree with you, John. In the 50s, I think he was either first and second in RBIs in the National League. Not just on the, Do uh, the Dodgers, in the National League. I mean, uh, you know, he, and then, and here's the other thing. Don't forget the Mets. He's he brought the amazing Mets. The guy has, uh, you know, uh, he, he, he had, 
certainly he deserves to be in there if Harold Baines is in there. And that was, you're right, I forgot, that was one of those veteran committees or or the old-time committees or whatever. The, they keep on yeah. flipping the names for those committees. Now, and that, here's the thing, and this is very important for everyone. We cannot now just say, okay, everyone that was equal to or better than Harold Baines is now a Hall of Famer. You just have to ignore Harold Baines. Right, right, right. Well, you're acting – I mean, I don't think Harold Baines should be in the Hall of Fame, but it's not like he was a 250 hitter. He was one of the premier DHs of the early years of the DH. I, I never saw him as a premier DH. It was always like at least five guys better than Harold Baines at DH. Yeah, you know, again, like you with Hodges, I got to go back and look at his stats. Uh, again, I don't think he's a Hall of well, Famer, but I don't think it's it's. I don't think he's the worst guy in the Hall of Fame. I think there are other guys that I would say, wait a minute, look at these numbers first. And I think this these committees. I mean, there are guys who I think there should be a correction for. I think Gil Hodges should be in the Hall of Fame. The only way that happens. Is through the committee. I think Keith Hernandez should have a better look. That will only be through the committee. Okay. What are we going to say, Kevin? I was going to say, okay, Harold Baines gets in, right? But Minnie Minoso doesn't? Explain <laughs> that one. Explain that. You know, Minnie Minoso was a lifetime right at 300. Led the league in stolen bases, traded between Cleveland and Chicago back and forth forever. Baseball's been very good to me. I mean, Minnie was a great player. If Harold, and that's what I think John and I are saying, Brian. If you start to say, let's have to take a look five times at a guy, to me, it's like, to me, Mike Trout is the greatest baseball player I've ever seen. Wow. At this stage. At this yeah. stage, yeah. Yeah, at this stage. Uh, certainly, if he, of course, he, he isn't going to end up like, uh, I don't think, and I'm being biased, you know, Poppy, like, what was it, six, last year he played, he led, in batting in six categories. That was a freak thing, but uh, 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 the other thing is, I, I get on this for a second. I'm glad Edgar got in because yeah. I didn't know Poppy would get in if you don't <laughs> have the guy you give the award to at the DH award, you know, the Edgar Martinez award. If he ain't in, Poppy wasn't going to go in. So I think that opened the door for him. And there's an example, so, though, of someone uh, that it took forever for him to get in. But to me, that was ridiculous. He should have been a no-brainer. He should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer, Edgar Martinez. And, and you know, let me ask you guys this. Do you think it's because he played up here? I mean, this is the land of the lost. You know, Seattle, think about it. They traded away every – we got – Really, Poppy from their organization. Uh, uh, who else? That's uh, Heath Slocum. They traded for Ferretech. Yeah, that's I mean, right. He, yeah, he never pitched. He never pitched an inning, and Ferretech never went anywhere but the Red Sox. He was the captain. 
I mean, they, they've made some bad decisions, and this is like no man's land. Remember, this is the second franchise here. The first one are now the Brewers. I mean, they, they still don't support. When you come, when you go to a Red Sox game, it's like a war. And but it's three quarters Red Sox fans. When I the first time I ever came to the game here, and I gave my ticket, the guy ripped the ticket and said, "Welcome to Fenway Park West." I couldn't believe it. Let's go Red Sox, just like being in Fenway Park. Uh, if football is a different thing here, that college basketball is a different thing. Baseball, you know, they were in the Pacific Coast League, the Rainiers. Uh, do you think it hurts guys? The look at the big stars that were here that had to get out of here to get the recognition. Alex, uh, Randy uh, Johnson, the big Randy Johnson. Uh, you know, I think being in a in a, in, a, in a town, a real baseball town, certainly helps you on your way to the Hall of Fame. And maybe that's why it took Edgar so long. I agree with you, Brian. Edgar was a double machine. He was a more than adequate third baseman. I don't think, uh, I didn't understand why it took him so long. Except what I said, being out here. I think with Edgar Martinez, he was the first DH to be inducted in the Hall of Fame. So you were kind of in uncharted territory, and I think that's why it took so long. I agree with you guys. I think Edgar Martinez is definitely a, a Hall of Famer. Even if he did not contribute defensively, he contributed enough offensively. He was he was offensive dynamo. He definitely belongs in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, he was a fantastic hitter. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, before we wrap things up, I got to ask a wrestling question. and. Kevin, we're living in very interesting times with COVID-19, the coronavirus, and it's affected sports. Obviously, we're doing opening day Star Wars. We usually do this in the spring. We're doing it in the middle of July, hopeful that we'll get 60 games out of Major League Baseball. And that's still questionable considering the way this virus is right now in America. But let's say you were actively booking a wrestling company a few months ago. We saw how AEW has dealt with it. We've seen how WWE has dealt with it. WWE did WrestleMania, an empty arena WrestleMania, including cinematic matches, where they had things they were building for that big moment, for being in a stadium and having 80,000 people see Brock Lesnar lose the championship to Drew McIntyre, elevating him. That happened kind of flat now because there was no audience there. It was an empty arena. What do you do if you're booking a wrestling company? I just imagine when you were booking WCW, all of a sudden you found out for months and you don't even know how long it'll last. You're just told, we're going to do some shows. There's going to be no audience here. What do you do? What do you do with all those programs you've been building up? If you're going to continue running while the rest of the world shuts down, what do you think as a booker you would do to deal with the coronavirus? This is, you know, I've thought about this, and sometimes I saw an interview with Musk, you know, the guy that does the Tesla. Elon Musk. set the rocket up. Yeah, where it came down. He said, not only do you got to think outside the box, you got to bust the box completely. I was thinking, 
you know, their ratings have been going down. Certainly, how, how do you keep the momentum on guys when there's no excitement coming from a crowd? I, me, I think they should have went back and cherry-picked great matches every week and take like uh, Brock or uh, McIntyre and show them in a different light where Brock's out in the woods, she shoots a elk and he's dragging it like Paul Bunyan and McIntyre in Scotland training and letting them uh, train in an MMA gym and different things like that to insert the top guys rather than having people singing entrance songs because you, it's driving it down and down and down. And let me ask you guys this. They get a, isn't it a billion bucks a year they get for that program? Rock and SmackDown, a billion dollars? For the TV rights. Uh, I don't think it's a billion, right. but I'm not exactly sure, but obviously it's hundreds of millions of dollars. That's the big mover right now for WWE is television rights. Uh, AEW, it's nowhere near that level, but that's what keeps AEW. I shouldn't say that's what keeps AEW in business. They have a billionaire backing it for his son. Yeah. But what justifies that investment is the idea they are getting tens of millions of dollars from Turner Broadcasting. So uh, WWE is at a different level with that. But I think that's the big thing people talk about with the changing face of the business of wrestling is that so much of it now is strictly about the television rights fees to the point where potentially you don't need to run house shows or anything else. So I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I think they're there, but don't you think there's an out for the TV company if it hits some number that's ridiculously low? and continues for 90 days, they can say, well, there's the door. I think that a lot of people haven't thought that way. They're just saying, well, the ratings are bad. I think they're, I think they're sweating this one out. I'm, you know, they bought uh, ESPN and uh, whoever else they're on bought a pig and a poke. And they don't know what was in that bag. They assumed it was a healthy hog. It doesn't look that way right yet. Right. To me, anyway. You know, I think they're very, very in a very dangerous position because momentum's everything. The XFL fell flat second time. Uh, didn't they get some grief from the stockholders about? Starting XFL up? Oh, they're getting grief from the stockholders about various things uh, from Saudi Arabia on down. <laughs> but specifically with the XFL, part of the reason was, I believe the WWE originally said that they have nothing to do with okay. the XFL. Vince McMahon was personally investing his own money in the XFL, would be a separate right. entity. And lo and behold, the WWE were investors in the XFL. And I believe some of the WWE's production team was used for xfl purposes as well and who knows what other entanglements there are i would be willing to bet there are probably a few yeah yeah and the other thing is this stocks in three years at one time went from 17 to 100 the last time i looked they were like uh 57 
say a redeal. Couple of the business magazines, and they were the cherry picked two years ago. This is good investment. Now they're not knocking it, but they're not on the list of stocks to have. So they yeah, better of- get the good. Now, I was going to say, a couple of years ago, the WWE was considered a good investment because their television rights were undervalued. So now that that's no longer the case, and the stock has kind of leveled out. That's right. Right. That's right. And it's not just leveled out, it's gone down. And my thing is, do you think that a TV station will let these ratings keep on going down and down? With all the competition now that network TV has, tell you the truth, guys, I very seldom watch network TV. You know, uh, I'm in the same boat. Uh, Other than I, like the Sunday morning political shows, more than likely, I'm not watching the networks. I'm watching cable. Right, right, and I'm watching streaming and cable. So I mean, uh. Yeah, so I, I I just thrown that in there. Who knows? I mean, you know, I'm not saying doom and gloom. I'm just saying anything could happen because of this virus. We're in uncharted waters. And who I I just went to a doctor last week for, to get the test for the COVID because I thought I, I was exposed by a friend of mine that came over. And I asked my doctor, what does she think? She said, this is just the start of this. Now, that doesn't mean she's right. But if this thing continues on, our lives are going to be changed. So it's caught and cleaned up and done. You know, it's pretty frightening to think that we may not get to see a baseball game and we may not get to see a football season and the wrestling if it continues on when are they going to say no more boxing no more wrestling and no more mixed martial arts where guys are touching one another yeah you know wwe had a little bit of a scare recently because there was an outbreak of covid19 amongst people working for them uh, on-screen right. personnel as well as, I guess, production personnel. You know, I watch AEW, and I mean, now they're wearing face masks, but they're still sitting right next to each other, the wrestlers that are sitting at ringside. And right. as much as we all want to see current wrestling and new wrestling, it makes me uncomfortable seeing a couple guys in the ring working and a referee right on top of them. You know, they can't wear face yeah. masks during the match. And we're still learning so much about this disease and about who carries it and how it affects different people, different ways and how you cannot show any signs of having coronavirus. And then all of a sudden you show the signs. AEW works with a guy named QT Marshall. He, I believe tested positive. A bunch of his students have been sitting ringside at their shows. They can't be there now because they've been exposed to him. I don't know who amongst them has tested positive. Tony Schiavone wasn't on this week's show because they didn't get his test results back. So we don't know what the results are, but they didn't have them. So they had to pull him from the show. Jim Ross is a commentator. He's not a young guy. 
he's in that range where he would be more susceptible to having something bad happen right. if he caught it. It's very, it's, it's really hard to watch wrestling and ignore it. AEW, again, they acknowledge it a bit more. WWE acts like they're in a whole different world where there's no coronavirus or anything else. Now they have plexiglass up and now people in the crowd, because it was such an outcry, are wearing the masks. But it is weird that in a world where we have no organized sports and baseball is just now starting up and the NBA is in the bubble. Basketball players are trying to sneak women into the bubble, but you know, yeah. we're in this world now where everything is trying to figure out how to start up and operate. Professional wrestling didn't stop. Professional wrestling kept going. It's the yeah. only thing that did, and I don't think that's a good thing. Well, I'll tell you why. You know why it did? Because Linda McMahon is in the cabinet head of the Small Business Administration. And DeSanto, the governor of Florida, is a Trump ally, which makes him a McMahon ally. And they made them essential workers. That's really strange yeah. to me, but that's how the world goes. But what, what I, the doctor said to me was, <laughs> you remember when they were saying that young people can't get this? Two infants died yesterday in uh, Texas from it. So is this going to be a way of life for a while? And if it is, it's going to be a strange world to live in. Yeah, I mean, I'm at a point now where schools are about to open up here, and I don't feel comfortable sending my kids back. And, you know, I think that they're going to probably announce that it will be online learning again in the fall once we get a little closer but we're a little over a month away and the plan as of now here in my area is hybrid learning half the day in school half the day at home but you don't know who they're going to be exposed to during that half a day because even if you're the strictest person and you don't interact with other people you can't expect that every teacher and every other student does the same thing so like i said it's a very scary place it's a whole new world Meanwhile, professional wrestling is operating with no crowds. Yeah. And, you know, Jim Cornette said it early on. He said, get, if you're going to do this, get your students, get your other wrestlers, get them at ringside. You need some sort of energy. Kevin, have you watched any of the empty arena wrestling? What are your thoughts on it? I had to turn it off to tell you the truth. Because uh, I, I, they're both friends of mine. One's a very different Terry in Lala. When they had that empty match, I wasn't a fan of that. And that was built up as a big angle. There is no energy. And that's why I think the baseball, especially football, won't work. Because we'll, we'll go back to, you know, John and I are going to rub it in your face a little. You know, when the <laughs> Patriots come back from 8 to 3, right? The energy. The crowd goes from the TV to us, especially if you're on that side, you're jumping up and down. I don't think it's going to work with no energy coming. Let's go way back in time. Let's go back to Rome and the gladiators. They filled the stadiums because they wanted to see Mortal Kombat, right? 
I don't think they would have done that with no people in the stands. I just think that this is a situation that none of us know what really is happening. We don't know if this this is the first wave, the second wave, the last wave, or if another virus is coming. It hit me this week because my accountant, two weeks ago, I was talking to him, he said, I'm all under the weather. He, his name was Harry Venus. You might have started in the wrestling thing. He was the accountant also for WWE at one time. And uh, a week ago, Thursday, he went in the hospital and died Friday. He was 61 years old. Oh, and Harry is in pretty good shape. And I'm saying to myself, how do you keep, especially, Brian, what you said about children. I remember my kids from the third grade, snots running out of their nose and crawling all over their friends. You know, I don't know if if it's, the, I know this, I'll know this one thing for sure. Why? Washington was the state hottest hit at first. The island I live on, you know, the San Juans is a group of seven of them. Well, we got hit where there was like this uh, apartment, it wasn't an apartment, there were homes, but there were adults only, 55 and over, but they had children pools. And you know, Basically, old people, but not an old age home. It wasn't assisted living. It was just people their age to keep them busy and shuffle boys and all that bullshit. Well, 137 of them came down with it and 13 died. Our governor just said, that's it. Shut everything down. We're just now opening up in stage one. Just last week. Wow. Um, up until Mother's Day, you couldn't get on the island, to be, any of the islands, even if you had a second home here. You had to be a resident. So they really isolated it and went down. But it seems you can't live in this bubble forever. And I don't know what the answer is in the whole thing, but I do know that I don't like watching wrestling with no energy. And I don't think I'm going to like watching baseball. John, what about you? I'm, I'm going to watch. I mean, I miss it, and I, I just can't help myself. I am going to watch baseball when it comes on. Hopefully, they will be able to complete the season safely. Uh, I hope we don't have a start and stop. But, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to watch. Well, I'll tell you what, guys, before we wrap up in a second, I'll say this. I saw yesterday... There was an exhibition game on TV here, Mets versus Yankees. So I got to watch it and they have cardboard cutouts of fans in the crowd, but they were also piping in crowd noise. It was like watching an old WWF superstars of wrestling show where the crowd's sitting there and you hear all the loud people, but no one's actually reacting. They were piping in the noise during the baseball game. And it's a very weird experience hearing crowd noise and knowing there's no one there, that it's completely fake. It's completely canned. They should not do that. They should just let, let it be played in the quiet. Do you know the Mets were selling those paper cutouts for $83? They're actually 
cutouts of people. <laughs> I, I didn't know I they were that. selling it. I, I knew they were people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you know it, John? I, I did see that. You could, get, you could get a cardboard cutout of yourself on camera. Yeah, yeah, for 83 bucks. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I got to talk to John Arezzi about that. I'm sure he would like to do that. But guys, as we wrap things up, every year when we do this, I always end by asking you, who do you think will win the World Series? It feels weird asking you that because it's a 60-game season. It's a little more than a third of a season. I don't know how we judge right now who will win the World Series. I don't know how we're going to at the end of the season if we get through these 60 games. What are we going to think of the Cy Young Award winner and the MVP? It's a, We're in a weird point in time. So I guess to wrap things up, John, let me start with you. How do you think we evaluate this year of baseball? If we get through the 60 games, how do you think we look at it? And do you agree with me that it's a little weird to pick a World Series winner right now? It is a little weird, and it's going to be going to be one of those years. It's going to be like if we started on the regular opening day, like the very beginning of April, and then stopped right around June 10th. And if you want to go back and look at old newspapers and see what the standings looked like on June 10th and then look at the final standings, they're way different. So anything can happen this year. We could see a really weird World Series winner. We're going to see like an MVP with 10 home runs. It's going to be crazy. Kevin, what do you think? How do we evaluate this year of baseball? Uh, Personally, I don't think we're going to get through it. But if we do, it's going to be like John said. I'm going to just take up something out of the air. Tampa Bay wins the whole thing. Uh, Oh, I I didn't expect that. Okay. (laughs) Tampa Bay, because like John said, if somebody goes on a hot streak, and he, he, this is going to skew guys' batting averages for life, uh, pitching uh, records for life. Uh, is Trout said he wasn't going to play? Is he still not going to play? David Price, no, he's not going to play. Uh, and you're right. You know, this okay. might be the year we see someone hit 400. This might be the year but someone wins the Cy Young Award with an ERA under one. Yeah. And, and, and Buster Posey's not going to play. David Price isn't playing. I heard that Mookie Betts is talking about not playing because he's in his last year where he can negotiate. And, you know, he was a streaky ball player for a while, the first couple of years. He would want to go on a bad streak. This is going to, like, there's a chance back in the time when Gwen almost hit 400, that was the strike-shortened season. Yeah, it's it really throws it into... It may make it interesting, though. Wouldn't it be interesting if, like, 45 games into it, someone's flirting at 400? I mean, <laughs> hey, it's baseball. The three of us love baseball. We're going to watch it. But hopefully... Hopefully something happens that this virus goes away and we can go back to normal things. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I hope thing. I, I'm at the point where I'm hoping things get back to normal, like within two years. That's how crazy this whole thing is. Yeah, yeah, and you're right too. I mean, I, I, here's the thing: 
One of the things that I think it's really going to hurt in the wrestling business is the independent groups and the convention people. Uh, the independent groups, you're going to see promoters. Well, another guy that died was Joe Pizza, who has been promoting independent wrestling when it was when Southwest Wrestling, you know had TV, he used to bring the TV up to Ohio and run Ohio uh, two weekends a month and he did really good and he just died recently from the uh, virus. Uh, are people going to be able to hold on guys, John, for two years and be able to run independent shows or are things going to dry up? I think independent Wrestling is going to be very difficult to start back up again. It's it's hard to say. I mean, maybe people will miss it that much or would want to try it again if it comes back in a year or two. But, I mean, really, you said it yourself, Kevin. This, this is uncharted waters. This is like nothing any of us have ever seen in our lifetimes. Wear a mask, everybody. Let's get out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody... Be safe. We continue now with opening day Star Wars. Opening day in July. It is so weird. And on the line right now, two very good guys, two very popular, well, one very popular, one soon to be very popular, host of wrestling podcasts right here on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. First, the man you know is the booker, the man who has kicked the shit out of cancer, the host of the very popular Breaking Kayfabe with Baldron and Barry. Mr. Jeff Baldron. Jeff, welcome to the show. I keep going a little bit further. Uh, you know, push me a little bit harder there. <laughs> I think that was a pretty inspiring introduction. But also on the line, the newest host of a show on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, a longtime manager, commentator in NWA Wildside, some may remember him. And of course, the man behind Charting the Territories, which is such a unique and interesting and very, very cool project. He's your friend and mine, Al Getz. Al, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? How's it going? Great. For us today, you guys are the Atlanta boys. Well, that's a that's a legacy that's tough to uh, you know abide <laughs> by. You know, the Hudson and Prazak and those guys. Well, there was yeah, the well, new Midnight I guess Express. We'll, you guys are the new Atlanta boys. Yeah, I guess we'll start out strong and then fade at the very end into, <laughs> into defeat and oblivion. Well, we're going to talk wrestling, we're going to talk baseball, and quickly on that topic, I have been thinking about you a bit, Al, because I feel bad. You had a goal that is out the window, I guess, now. I don't know, I want you to tell me what your thoughts are about how you're going to, if you're going to apply this at all in the future, but your goal was to be the very first man in every single major league ballpark. You were going to be the first person online, camped out, sleeping out in front of the new Texas Rangers ballpark. That plan goes out the window because of COVID-19. Where are you now with that? What are you thinking about that? And once again, I'm very sorry. It was such a cool goal that you had to do this. It was an interesting idea. I, of course, have been to every MLB stadium, but as of opening day, Globe Life Field is a new stadium. Therefore, everyone is uh, set back to 29 stadiums. So the goal was I had my tickets. I had my hotel. I had my flight. I was going to be there for the first home game 
at the new Globe Life Field, and then uh, COVID-19 hit. And my feeling right now is there's far more important things in life than this silly but cool goal. Um, I don't think they're going to be letting fans in anytime soon, so perhaps the dream is alive for next season. But I actually, I was a week too late on this, but I was thinking about, um, you know how they're doing the fan cutouts behind home plate? Yeah. Um, uh, so I looked into, and I literally just did this this morning because last night my friend told me he was doing it for his daughter for the Braves. But I looked into doing it for Globe Life Field. Unfortunately, there's two issues. The cutoff was last week. And B, you have to be wearing Rangers gear in your photo. So, but it would have been, had I really thought about it, it would have been cool to have my likeness uh, in Globe Life Field on opening day so I could at least, you know, have an asterisk uh, attached to my name like I was Roger Maris. But at this point, perhaps next season, I will look to going in on opening day if, uh, you know, the world hasn't ended and if they are still letting fans into sporting events. But for now, there's far more important things in life. And so the dream for now is dead. The Mets have done this with the cud- uh, the cudbud, the cardboard cutouts of fans in the crowds, various fans, various different head sizes, a couple dogs I saw as well. The Yankees decided not to do this, so it'll be interesting to see which teams do it, which teams don't. But what do you guys think? Jeff, I don't know if you've seen any of the, uh, it's not spring training, summer camp games. What do you think about the idea that they're piping in crowd noise the way Vince McMahon used to on Saturday night's main event or something. They're piping in fake noise for these ball games. What do you think about that? You know, I was watching the uh, the Cubs lose to the White Sox uh, the other <laughs> night. And uh, yeah, that's I'm just not a huge fan of that. Yeah, you know, it's a it's completely different subject. But the uh, last couple of nights, I've been watching Jeopardy. And they're showing these episodes like when Alex Trebek first started becoming the host okay a jet black hair Alex Trebek it's literally like the first two or three episodes that he ever recorded as the host uh by the way trivia time do you remember who the original host of Jeopardy was oh uh I know this and I'm forgetting off the top of my head who it was Art Fleming thank you very much that's right so what was funny though was when a contestant would miss a you know an answer or or not you know, not get the question right they have this piped in noise of the crowd going, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and I go, where the hell did that come from? And it was, it's the weirdest thing, hearing them pipe in noise on Jeopardy. But anyway, getting back to the Cubs and the White Sox the other night, yeah, no, I'm not a fan of that at all. Al, you wanted to go to every stadium. I think Jeff wants every hat from every well, team. I've got almost every hat. I, I, I think I missed the first couple I went to, but then I got in the habit of buying a hat at every stadium I went to. And also there are, uh, usually most stadiums have certificates, you know, um, usually for kids, but they'll give them for adults too, saying, you know, I attended my first, you know, so-and-so game <laughs> on the date. I got one for my kids at City Field. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And then I, I have pictures with m- many mascots, but again, not all. Um, and as far as crowd noise, I think from a fan at home watching on TV perspective, it helps. Um, I watched the, the KBO games with no crowd noise. I watched, uh, the Yankee Mets summer camp game. 
it it adds a little bit to the experience of watching at home. From what I understand, the home team is in control of that. So I wonder how long it'll be before someone, you know, when a, a fly ball is in the air and the visiting team is trying to catch it, how long before they blast, you know, a lot of noise and, and try and distract the fielder from catching it. And then they say, all right, no more crowd noise. You all screwed it up. I mean, they could try. By the way, just for the, just for the record, I collect minor league baseball caps. Oh, it's- uh-huh. I should I don't want no St. Louis Cardinals cap or nothing like that. How many caps you have now? Oh, I got rid of a few. Uh, of course, I don't have any hair. So, like, the sizes uh, of the caps that I wear is, uh, you know, a little bit different now, too. I, you know, somewhere like 50. But uh, I like obscure minor league team caps. And they're all fitted? Uh, some are fitted. Some I've got the uh, the band in. And like I said, you know, like because I don't have any hair, you know, like somebody sent me a cap from the Lansing Lugnuts, uh, which used to be a minor league affiliate of the Cubs, which is a you know great gift. But they gave me a size eight. It, you know, it, it like the thing goes down to my shoulders. <laughs> you ever think when you see these people who collect sneakers, like that could have been me? <laughs> no, never. <laughs> Al, when you go to any of these, uh various stadiums around the country do you ever double it up and go to a wrestling show in the same city that same weekend that you're there or not necessarily a weekend but whenever you're in that vicinity it depends uh sometimes i try and do something else cool relative to the city Uh, when i first started going to stadiums I actually uh, did all the Midwest stadiums, and I actually, uh, you'll see what a data wonk I am, actually made a spreadsheet with all the schedules of home games for all these teams to figure out what the best route and when to do it was. And it turned out that one of the two best times to do it was the, um, I think, in the beginning of September, and this was in 2015. And as I realized that, that was also NFL's opening, you know, the opening of the NFL season. So I redid everything and I ended up in 14 days. I saw 10 baseball games and five football games in nine different cities. Plus visited, plus visited the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, the uh, college, the, the, I'm sorry, the Pro Football Hall of Fame in um, Ohio and a bunch of other interesting roadside attractions as well. I haven't tied it to wrestling shows except for one time. When I was in California, on the way from Northern California to Southern California, I stopped by an independent wrestling event that had uh, Pentagon, Brian Cage, and Jeff Cobb, among others. So that was a cool little diversion. Now, Jeff is new to Georgia. He's spent so many years in Florida. People associate him with Florida, South Florida. Now he's in Georgia. What does he need to know in terms of the current Georgia wrestling independent scene? You know, I know that you've been involved in various things. You're not as active. I guess as a manager or doing things with any of the local groups as you have been in the past, but what's the scene like today? There, there have always been a lot of independent promotions in Georgia. And and right now, obviously uh, a lot of them are slowly starting to get back into the swing of things. Um, Jeff's good friends, Scott Hudson and Stephen Prezak are associated with wild side out of Cornelia, Georgia. And that company, uh, the the building still exists and it still hosts wrestling events. Uh, they're known as Anarchy Wrestling now. They just started rerunning again. Bill Barron's uh, is part of the team behind the scenes. Um, and then in the north 
west part of the state. There's always been tons of promotions in between Atlanta and Chattanooga all along 85 North. Um, one that gets a lot of good publicity is Southern Honor Wrestling, which runs in Canton, Georgia, uh, has a very solid crew. Uh, and then my good friend Matt Griffin runs in the southwest uh Atlanta suburbs, a promotion called Action Wrestling, uh, and I help him out uh, with a lot of events there. And he uses a lot of very good crew. He runs both a family-friendly show, but also appeals to um, those indie darling fans that that like the big names. Um, he he streams on independentwrestling.tv, so uh, there's a good crossover with some of the talent there. And you know there are also your shindies, which are all have always been a staple of Georgia independent wrestling for years. Um, on any given weekend, even now, there seems to be a handful of indie wrestling events, both good and bad. And sometimes it's fun to see uh, a little bit of everything and, and take the good, you take the bad, you take them both. And what do you have, Jeff? Uh, you tell me. Different strokes to move the world. Okay, there you go. Thank you, Arnold. <laughs> what you talking about, Brian? I I was wondering if uh if Jeff was going to jump on that, but not a different strokes fan, I assume. Well, you know, there was there was so much else to watch during the mid '80s, you know. So, but what about the late '70s? Well, I just posted a lovely photo of the emergency crew on uh, my uh, Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry uh, uh, Facebook group. And lots of reaction, apparently lots of old <laughs> fans of emergency. All right. By well, the way, just because this is the opening day, uh, you know, uh, podcast or, or, or 605, I want you to know that I came with some solid baseball trivia and I'm waiting for you to ask me. What, you have the trivia. I guess you're going to be the one asking us. Yeah, it's okay. So, <laughs> I, by the way, you read, didn't tell me that you had trivia. You said, well, like, I, I wanted to... to surprise you. Okay. So, <laughs> are you familiar with one of the great baseball books of all time called The Glory of Their Times by Lawrence Ritter? I'm familiar with it. I don't think I've read it. Okay. I think I, I have to tell you, I'm halfway through the book. It, actually, I, have it, it, I have it right here, actually. I have it, yeah, it, actually, it's absolutely a must read if you're a baseball fan because uh, what they did was they went back. Uh, this was like written in the late 60s, I think. And he went back and talked to a bunch of baseball stars, literally from like the 1910s, uh, the maybe the 1920s. So when I was reading that, I came across this little piece of trivia. This record is 103 years old, Brian. And as a baseball fan, I think you can appreciate that. Do you know who has the all-time Major League Baseball record for most triples in a career? Uh, Captain Jolie. Good guess. Sam Crawford. Sam Crawford played next to uh, Ty Cobb for the Detroit Tigers for most of his career. But the amazing thing is, how many? Among uh, 309 triples. Wow. Okay. The closest active player right now, Dexter Fowler, with 82. This record's never going to be broken, Brian. And you know, I thought I love, that was. I love triples too. I think the triple is the most exciting hit in baseball. Home runs get the big pop. Of course, but yeah. But the triple, once you, once the guy's at first base and he turns to second and you kind of see where the ball is and you're thinking, wow, he could get three. And then once he starts really chugging when he gets to second, you're like, oh, he's going to go for three. And then that anticipation, will he beat the ball there? It's the most exciting play in baseball. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the only player in the modern era, I think, that got within 100 
was Willie Wilson with the Kansas City Royals. And that's a, you say modern era, that's yeah. a generation and, and ago. Played in, in what, 20 years? At least. But, uh, so anyway, a little, little shout out, little love for Sam Crawford from the Detroit Tigers. Played over 100 years ago, Brian. Boom! That's my baseball trivia. Well, given, given how long ago that record was, I was going to guess you, Jeff. Well, yeah. <laughs> if it was 103 years ago, I, that uh, you could have qualified. But talk about triples. The greatest triple I ever saw was Brian McCann <laughs> chugging out a triple for the Atlanta Braves. Uh, Brian McCann, not the most uh, nimble player, uh, even in his younger days. And, and to see him... Uh, trying to run out a triple. Uh, they actually, I recall vividly the camera actually switched to Chipper Jones in the dugout, laughing his ass off as McCann is chugging from second to third, but he made it. And it was one of the most incredible things. I think any other player in the major leagues would have had an inside the park home run with that. I think the, sl- I think the slowest player I ever saw hit a triple was when John Olerud hit one when he hit for the cycle. Oh. But By the way, what do we think of Chipper's new hairdo? Oh, I didn't see it. What's his new hairdo? Well, he's got he's got the the kind of like a faux hawk, and he's got the uh, the little uh, wispy mustache and goatee. I, I don't know if he's trying to hold on to the youth with that look or what. I'm googling this now to try to get a shot of this. Yeah, he's. I'm, I'm sure he's trying to. He's clinging to something. Great player, I'll tell you. I hated him for oh, yeah. years being a Met fan, but I really grew to appreciate him. He named his son Shay after Shea Stadium. Yeah, because he gets that's pretty so cool. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you hate that, but that's kind of rubs cool. it in a little bit. It's rubbing it in a little bit. He's lucky he got it when we had names like Shea Stadium instead of MetLife Field or whatever. Yeah, the kid would have been <laughs> this is my son. Metlife name is Kid City. <laughs> I'll tell you, one of the most exciting games I ever went to was, I think it must have been Game Five. I think. It could have been game four, but off the top of my head, I think it may have been game five, Mets versus Braves. Uh, no, you know what? Because game one and two was in Atlanta, game three, four, five. It was game five, Mets, Braves, Shea Stadium, 99 playoffs, where the fans were throwing batteries at John Rocker, and uh, we finally got a hit off John Rocker to get the winning run. That was a really exciting time. The Mets-Braves rivalry was fantastic in the late 90s. And yeah, throwing batteries was. at the opposing team, that's a... Uh... Stay classy, Mets fans. Uh, well, I thought no, they only no, did- no, no. You can't say stay classy, Mets fans. It was John Rocker. He came up here and he made fun of people with AIDS. He made fun of like every... He was... He- I thought the only fans that threw batteries at the opposing team were the LSU Tiger football fans. Because I've heard that that when you go play a game, especially at night at LSU uh, during the football season, they tell the team, keep your helmets on because they're going to be throwing batteries at you. But yeah, that's uh, that's nice that Mets fans do that. Yeah, or Puerto Rican wrestling fans. Exactly. Well, they throw like pieces of cement. <laughs> I'm looking for this John Rocker quote that caused it all. Because, again, not, we really... Oh, he was not a nice guy. I, no. Yeah, he was an idiot. No, he was uh, trying to find where this is. I'm looking at different headlines here. Baseball suspends Rocker for comments. And this is a year later. I don't even know what he said there. John Rocker makes homophobic comment during Reddit AMA. So that's recent. The John Rocker story 15 years later. Let me see if this has the quote that got New York fans all riled up. Uh, I'm not seeing it. You would think you Googled John Rocker quote. It would be the first thing that comes up, but it's not. Here we go. 
Uh, later on, as we drove from there to here and here to there, John filled me in on some of his social takes, referring to Randall Simon, his black teammate. Wow. Okay, I don't remember this. Referring to Randall Simon, his black teammate, as a fat monkey and making it clear he was no fan of the Big Apple. Quote, Imagine having to take the 7 train to the ballpark, looking like you're riding in Beirut, next to some kid with purple hair, next to some queer with AIDS, right next to some dude who just got out of jail for the fourth time, next to some 20-year-old mom with kids. It's depressing. And that's John Rocker. That's why he got batteries. That, 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 that always plays well in the media, yeah. <laughs> That's why he got batteries thrown at him. Deserved it. Definitely. Do you were you in Atlanta already at that in the late nineties, Al? No, I didn't move to Atlanta until two thousand and three. Okay, so you didn't get to see like the the great years of the Braves in person. Uh, no, not in person. And also remember, prior to that, I was a and I still am a, a diehard Yankee fan. I did grow up in New York. Um, uh, I've always loved the Yankees, but living in Atlanta and especially now that I'm literally one mile from the stadium and was the season ticket holder for the last three years, I have uh, grown to love the Braves, uh, very much. And, and they both, you know, they have a common enemy in the Mets, the Yankees and, and the Braves have common enemies in the Mets and the Red Sox. So I still get to hate those two teams. So you I would like to point out, I would like to point out that part of the reason the Braves had that uh, historic run that they had was the fact that they were uh, they had Greg Maddox as part of the rotation. Uh, let me point out that that Greg Maddox had won a Cy Young for the Cubs. Uh, it was a contract year. He went to then GM Larry Himes. <laughs> Offered to not, you know, he said, I don't even need a huge pay raise. I want to stay in Chicago. Larry, being the genius that he was, decided he did not want to re-sign Greg Maddox. One of the all-time great moves in GM history and Major League Baseball history. And Greg signed with the Braves where he promptly won another Cy Young. So thank you, Larry fucking Himes. Let me, let me tell my you rant is, My rant is over. The reason the Braves did so well during those years was they had great pitching. And those pitchers were able to expand the strike zone in a way that no one will ever be able to do again. Yeah, they had an amazing rotation, no question about it. And they were able to expand that strike zone. Javi Lopez would be set up a foot off the plate, and the umpires could still call that back then. They can't do it nowadays because the office is watching them. But I brought this up earlier with Sullivan and McAdam. Go watch that game. The 96 playoffs, it finally got turned around on the Braves. Braves versus Marlins. Go watch the highlights of Levon Hernandez striking out all those Braves. Eric Gregg gave him a strike zone like three feet off the plate. The Braves were losing their minds, and rightly so. I mean, turnabout's fair play, but rightly so. He was striking everyone out. It was nowhere near the plate, and he was getting the call. The amazing, didn't he only win one title? The Braves, they won in yeah, 95. Braves, yeah. yeah, they yep, won yeah. in 95. Uh, but I mean, like, they were, they were there, like, seemingly every year, but they actually only won one title. That's, like, really quick, considering the rotation they had. Yeah, and the Yankees snuffed them out twice. Yeah. Yep, that's the Atlanta sports uh, legacy. Uh, so close and yet so far. Hey, if I could recommend a book, uh, if anyone wants to read, it's the best book I've ever read about pitching about the art of pitching. I did not expect it to be this good. I expected a good biographical story. And there's some of that, but it's mostly just about pitching concepts. It's brilliant. The David Cohn biography, full count, is, I, I'll never look at David Cohn the same way again. 
And I've heard him as a commentator. He's a very bright guy. I like him. He would fit in with the Met broadcast. He's that good. But this book is stunning just in his way of laying out why you pitch, when you pitch, why he did things other pitchers didn't do, why pitching coaches aren't always right, why they try to make everything uniform now, but there's still things you could do that are different. And he explains everything in detail. It's really, really thick with pitching information. One of the best baseball books I've ever read. I did not expect it to be this good. So I want to throw that recommendation out there for anyone who wants to read about pitching. Anyone who loves pitching like I do. Check out this book, Full Count by David Cohn. I'm pay- out in paperback right now, actually. So it's a bargain. So I, I assume. You never know. Books yeah. are expensive. That's true. Every time I get a book, I get it on Amazon. Then like the day it comes out, like, you save $6 off the list price. I'm like, holy shit. I just finished the Andre the Giant book. What'd you think? Uh, oh, my God. It's amazing. I think I mean, it, Pat, I, Pat I think, and Bertrand did an incredible job on that book. I said it on the interview with Bertrand, which will be coming out pretty soon. I think it's possibly the greatest wrestling biography ever written. There's yeah. nothing else in its league. It's just it's so thick and, it's and filled with so you, much material. And I have to just say, and, and I mentioned this on our show recently, that that. Oh, my God, the end of his life, it was just, uh, you know, he basically knew uh, that train was heading right for, you know, the mountain and there was nothing he could do to stop it. But it was just still so sad that, you know, the the way his body just betrayed him. But he he like basically had known for, geez, like 25 years that this this end was happening. And, you know, just to know, hey, you're you're not going to live to 45, you know. And uh, it was really pretty tragic at the end just to see the way his body was breaking down, you know, just but but it, that shouldn't take away from the fact it's it's an outstanding book. It's a fantastic book, but it's a very sad end. You know, we review all these original episodes of John Arezzi's radio show on Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now. So we're right now in the spring of 1990, but we did all of 1989. And, you know, it's sad you hear the callers, you know, they used to love Andre. He should retire. He looks shot. He looks like he's about to die. He looks old. And he wasn't even that old yet. Uh, it's it's really sad. And, and you know, from reading that book, you realize Andre didn't want to leave. It wasn't like he needed to be there. He didn't want to stop wrestling. It was his lifestyle. It was what he loved to do. You, you, you know, know what's fascinating to me, Brian, was uh, as you read the book, just how smart to the business he was. You oh, know, yeah. how, how he had the, you know, he knew what was going to get over and what wasn't, you know, and he, you know, famously gave Magnum TA his gimmick. I mean, you know, this was a guy that could spot talent that he knew was going to go places. Uh, He knew which angles were going to work and which wouldn't, you know, very intelligent and smart to the business. How about the fact that him and Dino Bravo hated each other? Yeah. That was interesting. You always figure all the French Canadian guys get along or all the in his case, French guys, uh, get along with the French-Canadian guys. He got along with everyone except Dino Bravo. Well, and then he had the fallout with uh, Frank Balois, uh, who they'd been close for so long, and, and they never actually said, or maybe they didn't know what it was that led to the fallout. But, uh, yeah, I, I can't recommend that book enough. Al, I know you read a lot. You're a book nerd like Jeff and I. What do you think is the best wrestling biography you ever read? <sighs> um... I'll, I don't know that they're the best, but the two that surprised me, well, one that surprised me and one that is just very, very good. Uh, the stampede book, uh, passion, 
Pride and Passion. Pride and Passion is phenomenal, very well written, very detailed, and covers a large swath of time. But the uh, autobiography that really surprised me was The Grapplers, which is one that uh, doesn't get a lot of publicity, but uh, people I've spoken to that read it agree with me. Uh, Grappler is a fascinating character because the way I, I describe it, he was in the right place at the wrong time for most of his career. He is in all the hot territories, either just before or just after they were hot. And uh, but his his book is very well written. He's very honest, uh, you know, uh, doesn't brag or boast or anything like that. And it's just a really good uh, examination of the career of a guy that does not get a lot of publicity, but was a guy that, you know, was in a lot of territories, was a key player in a lot of territories, uh, but seemed to just miss those peak periods. And he's a good guy. Len Denton's a really good guy. And, you know, the one thing I asked him about it, it's always puzzling to me. The grappler gets over pretty big in Mid-South, gets a pretty nice push. Long run with the North American title. Eventually, they become a tag team. Him and Tony Anthony, the grappler, starts in Mid-South, goes to Southwest. When he comes back in 85, he comes back as one of the dirty white boys. You would think the grappler or the grapplers would have meant more than a tag team no one knew in that territory or heard of before. And I don't even think he has a good grasp on why Watts wanted that, why Watts didn't want to bring him back as the Grapplers. Yeah, I don't know. Other than when the Grapplers left, which was in 82, they uh, when, when the two got together, they were not pushed very hard. Um, and I think they quickly, I think they ended up, uh, one or both of them lost their masks to two in Olympia, uh, around the house shows. So I think maybe Watts just felt like the grapplers were killed off in 82 and, and to bring them into something fresh, uh, might have, you know, caught the fans eye better than, Oh, those were those guys that, you know, uh, started out strong, but ended up, you know, losing on their way out. I, I don't, you know, I, there's just so many things we don't know as to why bookers did what they did with uh, re rechristening or renaming characters. You have to think there was a method to their madness. And it's just one of the mysteries that we'll, we'll never know. That period in 82, the end of the Buck Robley booking run is so interesting. And I, the one I still want to know what happened is the Mongolian stomper. They build him up for weeks on TV. They show footage out of Georgia. They bring him in. He's on one taping. He never appears ever again. You have to think he must have had a blowout with Watts or something. And then they replace him with the future Korstia Korchenko, Vladik Smirnov, one of the worst wrestlers of all time. And at this point, he had a farmer's tan. It was just awful, just terrible. Sometimes it's just about, you know, having a slot open and, and needing the first available body you can find. You know, they Stomper left a void for that role of a heel. And they, you know, if Watts can't get anyone from another territory quick enough, he needs to fill it with uh, whoever he can. Um, Stomper, that, that, huge yeah. talent, but uh, notoriously unreliable. Yeah. Yep. So, Brian, let me ask you, what's your all-time favorite wrestling uh, autobiography? You know, favorite. See, you said favorite, not best. Okay, favorite and best. Okay. I think Andre may be the very best because it's just, it's, you have to read it. It's so thorough from the very beginning. It dispels all the myths, which is so important because there are so many myths about Andre that were created by promoters, so many that were created by Andre that you have to really break every one of those down. I mean, the book begins with, 
WrestleMania three, where, you know, Andre is against Hogan. They're both undefeated 93,000 or as, as the way they put it, or so the story goes, which I thought was a really great way to kind of say, we're about to expose all of this. We're about to tell you what really happened. The Andre one, I think might be the very best. My favorite, I'm looking back here at my bookshelf. Now, we didn't say wrestling book. We said biography. I haven't read the J.J. Dillon one in a while, but I really loved that when it came out. I really loved the Ole Anderson one when it came out, despite it being Ole Anderson. Um, I'm looking here. What about the Patterson book? I think the Patterson book is good, but for a nerd like me, I, would, I wanted more detail and more more in-depth of the different places he went. I like books that are packed with information. I love the Bret Hart book. I love the Bret Hart book. That may be, if I had to say my favorite one after I was done reading it, it's probably the Bret Hart book. Interesting. Yeah, it was a Because he kept notes. Book. He kept notes on everything. And, you know, those Scott Teal books like JJ's and Oldies, Scott made sure they covered just about everything. And he also included a lot of pictures and uh, copies of programs and stuff. And I always like having that added detail. To me, that's the only thing missing with the Pat Patterson book. I really like it. It's a really, really good book. But for a rest, it's a good story. Let me put it this way. It's a good story. But for a wrestling nerd like me, I just want more of the ins and outs of various things. I don't like anything to be glossed over. I want real detail and real information about a lot of different things. What do you think, Jeff? What's your favorite? Uh, no, no. I, I, I completely agree with you on the Bret Hart book. Uh, Hmm. I really like the Patterson book. And what I like about a really good wrestling book is guys that work the territory. I like the Rocky Johnson book uh, because I, I like the fact that, geez, Rocky Johnson seemingly worked every territory. And that's part of what I like was you got to look inside the different territories. And um, so that that was a good one. Uh, let me think who else. Uh, you know what I loved what I, when it first came out and it actually got me, there was a few years where I walked completely away from wrestling. I just didn't give a shit. And it got me back into it was the Ric Flair book when that first came out in whatever, 2004, 2005 in that range. I think it was Flair with Mark Madden. That book, when it first came out, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Plus the idea of Roddy Piper being paid. I think in Puerto Rico or Dominican Republic with a spittoon filled with cocaine. <laughs> it's one of my favorite anecdotes ever. Jeff, you still thinking? Yeah, I'm, I'm there. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think of the ones besides the, the Rocky that I've read. Uh, I agree with you on the Ole Anderson book. Um, yeah, see, the ones that I don't like are ones where guys, you know, I, a guy that spends his whole career in the WWE that holds no interest to me, you know? So, oh, I know I was going to ask you. So who's the biography out there, uh, uh, the autobiography, that hasn't come out yet that you would like to see? Autobiography, okay. Because, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to Tim Hornbaker's Buddy Rogers book. I can't wait for that one. Because Hornbaker's been working his ass off for a few years on that. So I got to think it's going to have a lot of really interesting information. And Buddy Rogers was so involved with everything that happened for a 15-year period in the wrestling business. Autobiography. What autobiography would I like to see come out? So Buddy Rogers, the Shawn Michaels of his era, or, or vice versa, would that be fair to say? In a sense. I'm not, a bit, I'm not as high on Shawn Michaels as other people. He's, I'm not saying he's not good. I'm not saying he wasn't excellent. 
No, no, I'm just saying the fact that he was a, a, a talented guy that had a reputation of kind of being an asshole. Yeah, no, you can absolutely make that comparison. And he had his own clique of guys that he only wanted to work with. Yeah. Yeah, you could absolutely make that comparison. Again, he's a fascinating and intriguing guy. And I've done a ton of research recently about the period of time between 60 and 63, the Fred Kohler-Vince McMahon Sr. Toots-Mont relationship, which so much of that was involved, so much of that was because of Buddy Rogers, but Chicago was started getting their talent and their TV show out of Washington, D.C. That's why all of a sudden Bearcat Wright is a big star in Chicago and Buddy Rogers is there. And then that relationship falls apart. And it's after both McMahon and Kohler leave the NWA. Fred Kohler tries to dissolve the NWA while president of the NWA. Sam Mushnick, horrified at what was going on there. Kohler and McMahon leave the NWA. And then Buddy Rogers loses the title to Fez in, I think, February of 63. In the Northeast, that title change is not acknowledged. Buddy Rogers still continues defending the world title. I have air quotes here. The world title in all of those towns. You know, I've done a lot of research recently, and I contacted Tim Hornbaker, and he did some research, and he even created a thread on Wrestling Classics about it. When did the Rio de Janeiro story take? that Buddy Rogers won a tournament in Rio de Janeiro. And I ask this because I've got various propaganda from the New York office about Bruno San Martino coming into, you know, coming to your town soon, Bruno San Martino. Here's the box office records from New York. And here's the big wrestlers he's defeated. And here's the world title lineage. And the world title lineage is, you know, Dick Hutton, Pat O'Connor, Buddy Rogers, Bruno San Martino. Not... Tournament, Buddy Rogers, Bruno San Martino, in towns in the Northeast, including Boston. So I got propaganda, I say propaganda, promotional materials from Abe Ford. Bruno San Martino was presented as defeating Buddy Rogers for the world title that he won from Pat O'Connor. And I know people in the Northeast say they remember Willie Gilsenberg saying on TV that there was a tournament in Rio de Janeiro. But I wonder, well-known wrestling hotspot, by the way. Well-known wrestling hotspot. Antonina Rocca versus Buddy Rogers in Rio de Janeiro. The next notable match there is Pat Patterson winning the Intercontinental title tournament there. But after McMahon splits with Kohler, Kohler goes to hell. He goes to Jack Pfeffer. And I have all those programs, or at least a lot of them, trying to get them all. And it's all of a sudden Jackie Fargo is in as the world champion. He also has another world champion because... Johnny Valentine wins the title, and then Johnny Valentine never shows up again because <laughs> Vince McMahon Sr. pulls him. And then eventually Buddy Fuller wins the world title as Cowboy George Valentine. So far goes the world champion with, I think, two belts and a crown, and then George Valentine's the world champion. Crowds go in the toilet. Fred Kohler makes a deal with Bruiser. Fred Kohler goes bankrupt. The next year, he sells the rest of the office to Bruiser, Wilbur Snyder, and Vern Gagne. And that's the end of one of the most fascinating promoters in wrestling history, Fred Kohler, the guy who had better TV coverage than anyone, the guy who had so much power in the NWA just a few years earlier, gone from wrestling by 65. Wow. I'd like to see that biography, quite frankly, a Fred Kohler biography. I don't know who else would want to read it. I'm sure there are some wrestling nerds who would, but I don't think there's a widespread, uh, widespread clamoring for a Fred Kohler biography. Oh, how, about a, how about a Jack Pfeffer one? 
I would love that. Because Pfeffer actually ended up in Louisiana, uh, booking booking his talent into Louisiana in 61. McGurk had it for a couple of months after Gulf Coast leaves. Um, for whatever reason, the local promoters in the southern half of Louisiana switch allegiances from McGurk to Pfeffer, and, and all of a sudden Jackie Fargo uh, is there, as well as what's advertised as million-dollar talent from Madison Square Garden. <laughs> Yet aside from Fargo, I don't think any of the rest of the crew in 61 uh, had worked the guard. You know, Pfeffer, he has all these knockoffs, and everyone always talks about Bummy Rogers and Hobo Brazil. But recently I saw the one that had Naldo Von Erich, and I thought, oh, that's the greatest. And then I saw Schlitz Von Erich, and I was like, no, that's the greatest. <laughs> Schlitz Von Erich. He has a fake Baron Mikel Sakluna, Baron Skakluma. I mean, it's just, it's so ridiculous. I wish there Didn't was a- Didn't he have a fake, a fake Bruno too? Yep. Bruno yeah, San, like... San Martina. Yeah, yeah. That's right. But, Who you know, ended the... up working as Gypsy Joe Rosario and Pancho Rosario. The thing about Pfeffer that's interesting that would make it a doable project in a lot of ways is that he kept everything. Everything's in Notre Dame. I mean, not everything. Things are in Notre Dame and other things are in the hands of private collectors because I have some stuff from the Pfeffer collection. I don't know how it got out. But the story goes that Pfeffer left everything to Tony Santos. Tony Santos sold it to Eddie Einhorn. Eddie Einhorn donated it to Notre Dame. And Notre Dame has everything. They have, you know, everything that's still collected together of Pfeffers, they have it. So if you wanted to do a biography of Jack Pfeffer, spend a few weeks in Notre Dame, and you can make photocopies of everything, and you have all the materials. You have all the correspondence. You have all his notes. You have everything. Um, you know, and there's certain people that have done a lot to research him, like Tom Burke, throughout the years. I, I think a Pfeffer biography is doable. I think it would be really interesting. I think a Nick Goulas biography would be really interesting. Because, you know, there's a lot of people who just, We'll point George Goulas, George Goulas. That's why he went out of business. George Goulas. Is it that simple? Is there more to the story? Is there more to the story of him and Jerry Jarrett? And, you know, the, the dynamics in the relationship with him and Roy Welch, the wrestlers who hated him and said he was cheap, the other wrestlers who loved him and said he treated them great. So I think there's a good story there that I'd like to see at some point. Who would you yeah, like to I, see, Jeff? I, I think Goulas is uh, definitely someone that's ripe for a, a good, uh, a good biography. Uh, th there's certainly lots of material there, you know, uh, and you're right. It he was somebody that was either just absolutely um, hated with a passion uh, or like you said, there were guys that worked for him that never had a problem. How about an Eddie Graham biography? Uh, well, my co-host would be a guy that would certainly be a candidate to write that book, you know, because, yeah. uh, of the detailed records that he had, you know, that Barry has on CWF. I mean, he has an amazing, amazing library and just, he's kept it so detailed of all the different cards. And, you know, it, I never cease to be amazed when Barry posts one of those little postcards that the guys, when they first started working at CWF, where they had to post their shoot name, their legit address in case <laughs> anyone from the office needed to get in touch with a family member. That's always, that's pretty fascinating when Barry posts those. See, that's a tough book to write because there's so much to talk about and celebrate, and then there's such a dark side. Yes. But it can't yeah, be no, no it question can't about be lost it. over. You really have to deal with that. I'll tell you what, guys. I'm going to add someone because he's on a time crunch. He has to get going pretty soon, and he's on the West Coast. So let me try to add this person right now. Another splendid person. And I hit the wrong keyboard. This is going to keep <laughs> happening to me. 
Let me type in this number. I'm going to put you on mute. You guys talk amongst yourselves. Please. How are you today, sir? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Uh, so you're by I, the baseball stadium? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've, I've lived on this side of town now for 12 years. Yeah. Uh, I first lived in Midtown, actually um, went back to school later in life. So I went to Georgia State. Oh, okay. Uh, and uh, ended up getting a job on this side of town and found a place here. And I've lived here ever since. And I, I love Atlanta. Nice. Yeah. yeah, we love we love being in coming, you know, especially with everything that's going on in Florida now with uh, the COVID thing. And it's just like, we're so happy to be out of there. And so. All right. We have added someone. I believe he's on the line right now. Dan Farron, welcome to opening day Star Wars. Ah, well, it's good to be back, guys. It's good to hear everybody's voices again. On the line with you right now, of course, is me. And my phone's ringing. What the fuck? Hold on. Who the hell is that? (laughs) Everyone you know is on this call, Brian. That is so unprofessional. (laughs) I'm going to hang up on this idiot. On the line right now. That doesn't happen to Lou Kippelman. Let me just point that out. (laughs) It does not. On the line right now is Jeff Baldrin and Al Getz. Dan? Have you? I don't know if you've ever met Al Getz before. Have you? No, I've, I've never met Al Getz. I've, I've enjoyed his work. As, as the same, I've never met Jeff in person either, but I've, I've known of him for many, many years. My reputation precedes me. Well, Dan, I really wanted to add you because I know you have a time crunch, but let me ask you a question we were just talking about. Wrestling yeah. biographies. What is your favorite? Mm-hmm. What do you think is the best? And who do you wish there was a book about that there isn't one about currently? Oh, boy. Um, I read a lot of wrestling biographies, and uh, I've always really enjoyed the Gary Hart book. I thought it was very interesting. Actually, a book that I really like, which probably no one has ever heard of, uh, there's a book called Carpenter by a guy named Don Savage, who was basically a job guy out here. And um, and, and I think it's never gotten more than mid-card anyplace else. And he wrote a book several years ago. Uh, a short book, but it was just basically about the life of a carpenter, a guy who never was a big star, going around from city to city and uh, and and working. And I found it interesting because there, there wasn't a lot of controversy in it. There wasn't a lot of, oh, I hate this guy, I hate that guy. It was just basically a simple life about a guy who worked as a wrestler in the 1960s and into the 1970s. And it's uh, it's available on Kindle. It's like $3 is all it is. And it's, it's a really good little read. It's called Carpenter by Don Savage. Is it available in paperback as well? I believe it might be. It was self-published. Uh, Don passed away several years ago, and his family basically put the book out. But I believe it is available in paperback, too. You had to check on Amazon. All right, I'm going to look right now. What book do you, would you like to see that's not out there currently? Oh boy. Um, I well, you know, personally, I, I'm a big fan of John Tolis. I would love if John, who was very, very guarded about the business, had really sat down and talked about his life in wrestling, because I think that would have been a very interesting. I mean, the guy worked in the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, even a little bit into the 1980s, and was a really interesting guy. And uh, it I would have been nice to hear. Uh, about his side of, of all the uh, the California feuds with blasting and things like that. I would love to have, uh, have, uh, have had a, a, John, a John Tolis book, really would have. And I have just purchased Carpenter by Don Savage, so I should have it by uh, Saturday, apparently. Good, good. I think you'll enjoy it. It's a, very, it's a very interesting book, very different from a lot of wrestling books. Hey, Dan, can I ask you a hot-button issue? And Jeff and Al, feel free to sure. jump in with your thoughts. What do you think about the way everything's gone down with CAC this year? 
I, you know, it, it was funny. This was the year that I joined um, uh, as a lifetime member and promptly almost died five days later, which was kind of ironic because you know, <laughs> I, I made a joke a long time about it. I joked about it and said, you know, you know what you call a man over 60 who, who takes a lifetime membership out in the club? And the answer is an optimist. Uh, but that's uh, but it was CAC. I was glad to see it canceled. Um, you know, I've been going. I was going to CAC in the early 1990s. And here's the deal: um, anytime you have wrestlers running something, <laughs> you're always going to revert back to the old territory days. You're going to have feuds. You're going to have infighting. You're going to have people who don't trust each other and all that. Um, the the politics that's gone on, I have not been privy to it very closely, but I've heard bits and pieces of it over the years. It's back when uh, it was being run um, by uh, by some of the, the guys off of Mike Mazurki at that time, Art Abrams and uh, Maria Bernardi, who was the treasurer. And, and she when she wasn't doing that, she was running an apartment house in Hollywood, you know. It was a very simple, uh, you know, a club. You got together once a year and had a big, uh, a big banquet, and it was great. And I understand that they wanted to expand it and do other things over the years. Uh, but it seems that with each regime that came in, and not not so much Nick Bockwinkle or Lucez or Archie Moore when they ran it, but with the regimes that followed it, there seemed to be a lot of stuff going on. And when um, when Carl Lauer stepped, uh, well, Carl Lauer was kind of, they were, they were protecting Nick Bockwinkle for a long time because Nick was having problems. But when Carl Lauer stepped down and, and they made the transition a couple years ago, it was something was very rough about it. You could tell there were a lot of people who were, had been with the club for years that were leaving. A lot of new people were coming in. And um, I, I was very much disappointed in the way that CAC handled this year. Uh, I think if they had been a little more honest and, and came out in the very beginning and said, hey, look, we got this situation with um, with the deposit and, and we're going to be, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about it. But they gave the impression, like a lot of wrestling promoters do all the time, it's like, no, we're going to we're going to move full speed ahead. We're going to do this right away. We're going to take care of this. Uh, you know, no one's going to tell us you guys are scared. Don't be babies, this kind of stuff. And considering the fact that the, the it seems that sometimes the average age of a member of Cauliflower Alley is 115, uh, it didn't seem like a bright idea to stick people into. I mean, every year that we left the Gold Coast, I I, I always remember I, I'm going to have Vegas throat for about a week or so afterwards. And my wife and I decided early on that we there was no way we were going to go this year, uh, not coming off of the, the problems that I've had the last six months. Uh, that it was just asking for trouble, and and there were so many other people that I talked to that were in the same boat. Um, I wish they would have handled it better. I'm very curious to see where things go from here because there's been a, a lot of things now come to light. Um, uh, let me just say that I'm, I'm glad they canceled it and um, I'm going to wait and see what happens with them from here on out. I will always support the club to some extent because of the fact that they do do a lot of really good things. They probably could do a little bit more. Uh, and that I have a lot of friends that I've met, uh, a lot of guys with the 605, and a lot of guys I would never have met without six, without uh, the CAC. Uh, I'm just hoping they kind of get their act together between now and next year. I think that for me and, and the way I think, I think they need better management and a more competent board of directors, a board of directors that actually operates like a true board of directors. I think right yeah, now it's kind that, of, I, I, pretty, I was going to say, I think it's, no, a one, I, I, I think it's a one man show and a handpicked board of directors. 
Yeah, I think that, and this is like this is this is like everything that happens that involves wrestling. It always it involves cronies in some sense. Um, I would like to see somebody maybe step in and run the club eventually who doesn't have a wrestling background, who has more of a working with a nonprofit background, and then have wrestlers advise them and do things like that. Um, I think that once you you get uh, somebody up there. There's, everybody has enemies in wrestling, and it always reverts to that. And this whole idea is it's supposed to be the ring of friendship. It doesn't quite always feel that way. Uh, so I'm, I'm I'm hoping that maybe some changes will, will be made because changes are going to have to be made because this whole thing was a, a real debacle. You had split people down the middle this year, um, and I'm I'm hoping I, I think you're right, Brian, in that situation. We we need to have uh, we need to have some uh, some better checks and balances. Always the voice of reason, Dan. Uh, Jeff, I know you spoke about it on your podcast. <laughs> what are your thoughts about the way CAC handled it and where CAC is in 2020? Well, let me just say that uh, you're correct. We had Roy Lucier uh, on talking about it, who recently resigned uh, from, I think he was the social media director, uh, after receiving yeah. some threats against his family, which is just completely ludicrous as far as I'm concerned. You know, the the one thing I'll say is uh, I know every year uh, for the last, I don't know how many years, Howard Baum had, had been going out there. And... One of the things that Howard said to me that I thought was pretty interesting was that at this point, as far as, you know, I went out there, I want to say approximately 2005 uh, for the only CAC event I was able to go to. And, you know, part of the attraction of going was seeing the older wrestlers and getting to meet them and interact with them. And, you know, I got to meet Jack Briscoe, for God's sakes, uh, before he passed away, which was, you know, one of my childhood heroes. And Howard told me that at this point, because there's not as many of the old timers that go to the event anymore, and you know, maybe I'm wrong, uh, maybe Dan will say different, but that's, that's Howard's opinion, that part of going out there is just interacting with the group that you met out there, you know, and, uh, you know, that Howard had met guys like Vandal Drummond and stuff like that. And he said, basically, at this point, we're just going out there to interact with the, the group of guys we hang out with, as opposed to going out there to see the, yeah, because you have guys, unfortunately, dying off, or you have guys that because of the problems within the group, maybe they don't go anymore. So, you know, there, there are some problems there, obviously. Al, you yeah, have I mean, uh, oh, well, Dan, jump oh, in. Sorry, Dan, Al, Al, jump in after Dan, and I can know what you think. But Dan, oh, go ahead. I, I just want to say that, that, that Jeff, Jeff is right in that situation. Uh, the, the whole wonderful pull for me in the very beginning of the 90s was you would go there and you would sit and talk to Kenji Shibuya, Lou Fez, uh, Baba, Anoki, all those guys were all, uh, and all the old school guys were there. And unfortunately, as the years go by, um, they start to die off. And I find that the wrestlers that I loved as a kid, uh, or no longer there. And uh, probably the, the latest they go back to now is maybe the 80s, and that's fine to some extent, but I was adult by that time. And wrestling, I had a different look at it. The little pockets that I like each year is I usually am able to find somebody, uh, whether it be a Nick Kozak or a Pepper Martin, or last year I got to sit down, uh, and this is this was the highlight of the entire Cauliflower Alley for me last year. I sat down with Sandy Parker and Dean Silverstone and talked to them for a half hour. And the trip was entirely worth it just for that half hour. It was the last time I saw Dean and Sandy was wandering through Cauliflower Alley. Nobody had noticed her at all. Nobody said anything to her. 
And I walked up to her and started talking to her. And that was a highlight for me. But yeah, a lot of that, that appeal, that draw, the guys that were, were our heroes when we were young are no longer there. And I just can't get quite as excited over some of the guys now that I used to in the old days. As for me, I'm the new kid on the block. I did join the club earlier this year as a lifetime member and was planning on attending my first ever convention in the spring uh, and then thinking about maybe doing it in the fall. And now, of course, uh, we'll see what happens come next year. I, you know, I, I firmly believe in the mission of the club. One of the things you know we need to understand is there are no retirement plans for wrestlers. There are no 401ks. There's nothing like that. And an organization that that can uh, provide assistance to those that need it later in life is a very good thing. And 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 my personal feeling is we need to do whatever we can to keep that going. Um, but as Dan was saying, also, uh, you know, a lot of the joy is, is I've gone to conventions. I, you know, I met Jeff. We had a couple of interactions at Barry Rose's fan convention in Florida. I've been to other fundraisers and got to speak with, you know, Bachwinkle and Fez and Steamboat and Jerry Briscoe. That's great for people who came into wrestling later on after the territories that still have a connection to it. And also guys like Dan and Jeff people whose names I've been reading in newsletters for, you know, at this point, a couple of decades. Yes, it would be amazing to be able to meet them and talk to them and interact with them. And and so we need to continue to have that structure uh, and the club. And as far as all the politics going on, I certainly can't speak to any of it because I'm, I'm not around. But my feeling is whatever we need to do to keep CAC going, uh, we as a wrestling community of uh, people formerly in the business, peripherally in the business or observing the business, need to do whatever we can to keep it going. Well, we'll see what happens. I know they're sitting on a lot of money, which is interesting because they're always begging for money. But we'll see what happens. Uh, Jeff, I know you have something you have to go attend to. So before you get off the call, give the listeners of the Super Podcast a little bit of an update about your health. Obviously, so many people have been concerned about what's been going on with you. I know you just completed your chemotherapy treatments. But what's going on health-wise in the world of Jeff Baldrin? Well, uh, you're correct. Uh, approximately a week ago uh, at the time of this recording, I... Uh was discharged from the hospital after my sixth and final round of chemo. Uh, I will only say that for anyone listening to this podcast, I pray that you never have to go through this because it is, uh, and, and I say that, you know, I was sitting there looking yesterday on Facebook and, uh, my friend, Oben Johnson, one of the Greensboro boys at front row ringside, uh, has been going through, Oh, my God, what he's been going through on a daily basis. He has uh, multiple melanomas and, uh, you know, my my treatment, I got through relatively unscathed. Uh, you know, I I was originally uh, admitted by my doctor. Uh, my doctor basically kayfabe me. He told me, oh, I'm admitting you because uh, you look dehydrated. Uh, and after the first couple of rounds, he told me that uh the reason he admitted me was uh, when he felt the tumors in my stomach, he basically felt like it was on a Friday. He basically felt like if he hadn't admitted me, I would have been dead by the end of the weekend. Uh, that kind of uh, wakes you up real quick uh, when your doctor tells you that. But uh, I like to say that I'm not cured. I'm currently cancer free. Of course, anyone that's ever been through cancer or has ever had a family member go through cancer knows that there's a period of time after which before you're, you know, technically given the clean bill of health. 
uh, that, uh, you know, so what I will do is on a monthly basis, I will go and I will have uh, either a CAT scan or a PET scan for probably the next six to nine months, just to make sure that there's uh, no reemergence of any of the tumors. Uh, depending on how you look at it, I was either extremely lucky or extremely unfortunate because the kind of cancer that I had, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, is one of the fastest uh, acting cancers, meaning that you can uh, be dead from it quicker. But it's also uh, the good on the good side. It's one of the most treatable kinds of cancer. Uh, that's why I mentioned Oban. Uh, you know, so the the tumors that I had in my body, according to my doctor, were metastasizing two for one every single day. That's why he made the comment about how, uh, you know, I could have been dead by the end of the weekend. But God willing, and the creek don't rise right now, I'm doing pretty good. I still have some issues with my appetite, uh, you know, uh, things that I ate or drank before this whole mess started. Uh, some of them I still don't have an appetite for, which is very strange. Uh, one of the things I mentioned on my own podcast was I used to drink a Pepsi and a Mountain Dew every day, and now I can't stand the taste of either one of them. It's very weird. A I've mountain, had a dish of- A Mountain Dew every day? What's up with yeah. that? Uh, yeah, well, that might explain why I was overweight, but that's another story for another time. <laughs> I, I'm at the lightest I've been since my first marriage, Brian. Let me just say that. <laughs> well, that's good. So you have two good so. things going for you. One, you're at the lightest weight you've been at in quite a long time. And two, you're not in South Florida. Well, there's that. <laughs> well, so I'm not in the I'm not in the hot spot of the uh of the United States for uh for COVID, that's for sure. And, and you know, I'm happy that I'm up in the, the mountains of Georgia where it's not nearly as big a problem. Knock on wood. Uh, I, of course, still, uh, you know, maintain uh, my uh, my distance. Uh, you know, my wife, God bless her. She's uh, she's done so much. She's been an absolute rock, uh, you know, that uh, that has steered me through this because I got to be honest with you, just with the medications I take, keeping track of them. My wife does that because if I had to do that, I'd have been dead a couple of months ago. Well, everyone's happy that you're doing better. Everyone's going to keep rooting for you and hopefully things continue on the right path here. But Jeff, I know you have to leave. Want to remind everyone, Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry out every Tuesday at baldrinpod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcast. It's wrestling, movies, films, food. Break kayfabe on life. On life. And everything else. <laughs> I asked Jeff once. I said, why do you do that? I love it so much when you yell, we break kayfabe on life. He goes, I'm copying you. Yelling the mothership. I said, I have no idea. I didn't think just yelling things was copying me. But I was flattered to know that that's what he was doing. But Jeff, thanks for being here today. Thank you, gentlemen. Good talking with all of you. Have a great one. Take care, Jeff. Okay, bye-bye, guys. Stay safe, John. All right. We will continue now with opening day Star Wars. Now, Dan, you're not a baseball fan, are you? Uh, no, I, I follow the Baltimore Orioles, so I'm really not a baseball fan. Uh, <laughs> where, where do you follow them? Are you going to see? I follow, I follow them in the last place every year. It's a, they're, in the, listen, they're in the middle of a rebuilding century, so you know it's going to be quite some time. Uh, I think that actually this season – this season, uh, Camden Yards is going to see a very successful season, and that's going to be from the, the, the Blue Jays, not the Orioles, uh, who, who are looking at using uh, Camden Yards, whatever the Orioles are playing there. Uh, I, I love I them. I love that. the team. Well, let me stop you. I oh, yeah. heard that. I know that they can't play in Canada because uh, Canada has banned mm -hmm. baseball. 
They're going to play in Camden Yards. It looks like they're they're looking at Camden and, and at Pittsburgh uh, to uh, to basically play there in the states. Yeah. Wow, because I that read, just came out in the last day or so. Yeah, because people were you know speculating they were going to play in Buffalo, um, which didn't seem right to me. <laughs> but I didn't know they were going to play <laughs> just because it's not a major league ball. Yeah. that's the only reason. I didn't know they were going to play in Baltimore and Pittsburgh. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean they have some connections there, and they're looking to do that. But uh, no, I love my 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 Baltimore Orioles. I love them, but uh, they're a long way uh, from from being anywhere. At least at least this year they can't lose a hundred games. That's the one thing I can say about them at least. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I am a baseball fan. Uh, I find it very interesting that you know the Dodgers are doing this thing out here where they're uh, you, like for two hundred bucks or three hundred bucks you purchase a, a cardboard cutout of yourself and they put it in the stands. And because it is Los Angeles, I think that uh, if I ever paid for a cardboard cutout, I'd have to put in the parking lot for all the people that leave the games early. So I, I like to be sitting there at that point. <laughs> the Mets are charging $86 for that cardboard cutout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Braves were 50 yeah, the Braves were doing it. It's a $50 donation to the Braves Foundation. And I think the Texas Rangers was the same price point and the same that it's a donation. Yeah, I mean, that's the right way to do it. I actually thought, I didn't realize until late in the game that they were selling it. I thought it was just like something for season ticket holders. I didn't realize it's anybody wearing Mets gear can pay for this. But you have Uh, to wear Mets gear. In a shocking move, they decided that anyone willing to pay the amount they decided to charge, they would let them give the money. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hey, uh, you know, Dan, I know you also have a tight time crunch today, but... I do before we go too much further, just like with Jeff, a lot of people have been concerned about you this year. What's going on with you health wise? Oh, oh, I'm doing better now. The last six months have been really crazy. Um, my kidneys failed me on Christmas night. And uh I went into urgent care and uh the doctor told me that this is this is gonna parallel some of Jeff's stuff, that if if I hadn't come in, I probably would have dropped in a couple of days after that because my potassium rate was real high. And uh they had to extract they extracted close to a gallon of urine out of my bladder, uh, which I was walking around carrying and, and hadn't realized was that bad. And then I immediately sold the urine to Jake Roberts. So there, I did the joke first, okay? <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was. I, I spent five days in the hospital. I lost 25 pounds. And um, I uh, got out, and then I had an operation in February. And so far, so good on that. Um, and I was supposed to go back to work. Uh, the first day that the quarantine hit, and then I was out for another two months. So I was out for about three months. Um, I, I I started going back to work. My doctor okayed it two months ago, uh, and then with all the the, the amplification of the problems here in California, uh, I'm back to guarding an empty building at this point. But uh, but I'm doing good. Um, I I lost weight. I'm losing more weight. Um, they changed my diet completely. I haven't had red meat in six months. Um, so I, I'm having no fun whatsoever. You guys constantly talk about pizzas and all this kind of stuff on there. And I can't eat any of that crap anymore. Uh, I'm mostly Turkey fish salad, plant-based chicken stuff like that. And I also, I took a, took the, took the opportunity to change my, the way I think about a lot of things. I mean, when somebody, when the doctor says, Hey, Dan, you know, if you rolled over that night and gone back to sleep, you'd be dead by now has a tendency to make an impression on you. And uh, so I started looking at how I, I deal with things. And I've always been kind of mellow and, and kind of relaxed, but there were some things that, that still got me upset. So 
I, I try hard now not to waste my time on stuff, little stuff that irritates me. If I, if I don't like this or don't like that, I move on unless it's a hill to die on for me. And, um, and the same thing with wrestling, you know, if, if something irritates me, I, I just don't watch it. That's, that's what I do. Um, and I find that that's been very, very helpful. And I'm, 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 I'm turning into a very, even though I'm not from California originally, I'm turning into a very, uh, a very uh, comfortable, very docile guy who wears a beanie and tie dye on the weekend type stuff. So I'm, uh, I'm doing better. I feel better than I have in a long time. I'm down about 50 pounds. Uh, and I'm going to try to do another 50 is what I like to do. And the doctor last time he saw me said that um, I don't need to come back unless I have a problem. So it's a, a kidney thing is a day by day thing. I am a little worried about COVID. I, I'm very careful about that because that can hit you pretty quick. Um, and, and much like Jeff, my wife Bruce, has been wonderful um, in helping me out with this whole situation because I got sick right before COVID hit. So it was like a double whammy. Uh, and uh, so I feel for anyone who's going through health problems now uh, because of the fact that, um, you know, it's like all of a sudden uh, you're having this health problem and now the entire world's having a health problem around you. So it's a very weird time. But uh, everybody, you know, a lot of people on the 605 have checked in with me from time to time. Uh, I've been very much overwhelmed uh, by um, uh, the, uh, the people checking in on me who know me real well, who only know me through Facebook or whatever. Um, and, uh, I appreciate it. I also wear my Arcadian Vanguard mask very proudly all the time, <laughs> very but nice. I'm doing better. Thank you very much for asking. No, we were all concerned about you. You were one of my favorite people on the show and just an all around good guy. And if you, need, you. The, if you need something to help mellow out, go, go see Vandal. I'm sure he can probably. Oh, I know. Listen, <laughs> trust me, we've talked about it. And if, if I, if, if a security guard, if I wasn't being tested on a regular basis, I probably should be able to work something out. Uh, yeah, but you know, there's a big difference between being mellow and being comatose, and that's the, you know, the guy who's retired now. It takes me longer to get a hold of him now than it does when he's active. So, uh, but uh, no, he's my buddy. He was the guy who came to the hospital and, and took me home because there was no way my wife was going to be able to drag my ass up the stairs. But uh, my buddy Kurt, for the last thirty years, has always been there for me, and, and he's the guy that uh, brought me up the stairs and threw me on the bed. So I appreciate that. I'll tell you what, before you get off that bed and head out to work, let me add someone to the call. <laughs> let me, uh, I'm going to dial him in now. Guys, talk amongst yourselves while I add this person. Good. I, Al, I want to tell you, I, I listened to the first uh, uh, podcast, and I absolutely love it. It's it, it, it jumped up into one of my favorite top five podcasts. It's the perfect thing to listen to. Uh, again, it makes me very mellow. Just, just listening to facts and figures, I love that kind of stuff. So, uh, congratulations! Yeah, I, that. I, I'm looking forward to. It. And I also started uh, checking in on your uh, on your uh, Facebook page and your website more often too. Well, I appreciate that. It's been something. It's been a passion of mine for a couple of years now, and I've slowly been, you know, rolling it out on a, on a grander scale. And I found the perfect co-host for the podcast and the perfect host yeah. uh, uh, network to host it with uh, Arcadian Vanguard. Um, so things were uh, are really going well. Um, and and I'm just I'm so excited. I told Brian like if five people care enough about this to listen to it, I'll be I'll be so happy. And it has definitely exceeded that for sure. And and to hear um, people who whose names I've been familiar with for you know going on 20 years in the newsletter industry like yourself to hear you know that you're taking wow. the time to look at and listen to my stuff it's, it means the world to me so thank you well thank you i appreciate that it's also nice to hear that i feel like 
I, I, I always amazed me when people say that. I, I always feel somebody said, you're like a legend. I said, no, I'm not a legend. I'm just an old guy that hung around a long time. That's what, that's what a legend <laughs> is. But, but thank you very much. That means a lot coming uh, from you. I appreciate that. And, and, and uh, Hello. I hope uh, everything uh, continues. Uh-oh. Huh? Well, you don't have to say, uh-oh. On the line right now, as you guys are trading compliments back and forth, a yeah. very, very popular man, the noted wrestling humorist himself, Scott uh -oh. Cornish. Where? <laughs> is this WFAN? <laughs> no, this is not WFAN. Uh, Steinbrenner sucks. <laughs> no, this is opening day Star Wars. Welcome to the show, oh. Scott. On the line with us right now is Dan Farron, the late Dan Farron, almost was the late uh, Dan Farron, in California, as well as Al Getz from Charting the Territories. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Oh, thank you. Good to be here. How are all my uh, my other uh, veteran undesirable demographics uh, doing this? <laughs> <laughs> the Over the Hill Gang. Yeah, we did talk. Yes, exactly. We <laughs> talked about that the other day. That's funny. Uh, yeah, I'm doing fine, Scott. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. I'm, I'm not sure how old Mr. Getz is. I know Brian's got a couple of good years left in him. I'm I'm going to be out of the prime demo next March. Uh, as of next wow. March, I, I will have to switch apparently from all elite to NXT. Well, there you go. Jericho's gonna Jericho's gonna need some company. He turns fifty in October. Yeah, so I'm I'm uh, five I'm five months behind him. Well, we have a news That's update. Okay. We have a news update real quick. The, what? Chris, the Chris Jericho cruise has been pushed back. To the fall of 2021. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Oh. So there goes Ted DiBiase's well, plan to flee. Yeah. <laughs> Sebastian Bach is going to well, have to further clear his schedule. <laughs> I have gotten such a kick well, you know, out of the Jericho-Sebastian Bach feud. I love it so much. Uh, I think I really think it is a setup just for that cruise. I don't know. We'll see. I listen the way the things that the way things have been this year. They're probably lucky they didn't go on the cruise because they either would have hit an iceberg or been stuck offshore for the rest of the year. <laughs> my my mom actually had been scheduled to go on a pretty long cruise. She's done a lot of cruises, but she was going to do I think a four week long one earlier this year, um, and it got as as things were progressing, the cruise lines weren't canceling. Um, because obviously they they were hoping that people would cancel on their own so they could keep the 25% right. or 50% or whatever it was. So they were yeah. basically the cruise goers were playing a game of chicken with the companies, but not only did she get all her money back, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name names in case anyone's listening, but she actually came out ahead by three hundred dollars because they covered <laughs> up to a certain amount for her flight, and she ended up switching her flight and getting a cheaper one on her own. But they reimbursed her the original fare, so she actually made out uh, like a three hundred fifty dollar profit by her cruise getting canceled. Outstanding. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Well, we may, we may have a. Uh... I'm sitting out on the back porch here. I hope it's not too overly noisy or anything. We're supposed to have a major uh, rainstorm, so maybe I'll get hit by lightning uh, while we're talking. <laughs> I can't promise anything as great as the uh, as the Dan Farron earthquake, but uh, <laughs> keep your fingers crossed. We just 
we just hit the year end and just passed the year anniversary of that. I popped up on uh, on Facebook. I got it seems so long ago. It seems so nothing now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Dan, when do you we have sit to around jump going, off? Excuse me. Dan, when did you have to leave? Um, I got about another fifteen minutes, if, unless you want me to leave now. I don't no, know. No, no, no. I, I, just, I, just want, I just want to have an idea, Dan. As I'm trying to schedule this, I want to have an idea. Get out! Don't say jump no, off. Don't say <laughs> jump off on a bus, for God's sake. <laughs> so, no, I, yeah, I can, I can, I can hang for fifty. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, who's watching wrestling nowadays? Do you guys watch it? Yeah, sure, I do. <laughs> what? <do> I, <laughs> I give it the old college try every few weeks, but it just doesn't hold for me what it used to. Um, and, and I don't want to hate watch things that seems just kind of pointless when there's so much else to do. So, yeah, no, I, I don't watch. I watch well, NXT. I, oh, I'm sorry. I, I watch NXT. I, I enjoy that. Um, everything else I don't have a lot of time for. And I really... Like I said, I also don't want to hate watch anything. Uh, if I hear something is good, I'll, I'll track it down and take a look at it. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been trying. I got the network so I could get my wife a little more interested in wrestling. And I, and I, I need to show her stuff that, that she will like, not stuff that will turn her away. And that's most of wrestling today. So. What do you guys think? And let me start with you, Al. What do you think wrestling's missing the most that causes you not to be as interested? Honestly, to me, and, and one of the things I've learned is that perhaps my interest in watching wrestling as a fan in my younger days wasn't so much about the matches as it was just the, the TV and the promos. The first thing that got me hooked on wrestling, I was flipping the channels at my grandmother's house in Florida and came upon a Dusty Rhodes interview. I don't even think I knew it was wrestling. I just saw Dusty, you know, doing one of his typical Dusty promos. And I said, I don't know what this is, but this is the coolest thing ever. And I think of the Roddy Piper promos on Mid-Atlantic that were just, you know, he was just so insane and, and crazy. And, and, and he just made you want to get invested in it. And obviously, ideally, that pays off with people buying tickets to shows. And I did go to a lot of house shows in New York in the 80s. But I just think the whole unpredictability and the whole Memphis TV, the way people compare it to the Muppet Show and how uh, you know Lance was Kermit as a huge Muppet Show fan, I, maybe that, that's what drew me to it. But just this whole <laughs> chaotic, unpredictable nature of it. And now that everything is so polished and rehearsed and scripted, it doesn't hold the same magic for me. Uh, anymore. And, and uh, I, you know, the people that are pro wrestlers today, uh, they, what they, they're amazing at what they do. They're fantastic. A lot of them are, it's just, I don't like what they do. And I liked, you know, I liked Sabu because you could never really tell if he was, you know, taking these crazy, you know, landing at crazy angles and selling his injuries in very unusual ways, if that was part of his shtick or if it was because he really killed himself. And so that whole aura of unpredictability I think is what appealed to me the most. And that just doesn't exist anymore. Anyone else? What is wrestling missing today? Yeah, uh, uh, it's too pretty. It's too clean. It's too corporate. Uh, I, well, one of the things that attracted me early on was how messy it was. I mean, it was just like fly by the seat of your pants. Um, uh, you know, it just, it, everything, every, it was simple. It was simple. That's what I loved about it. It was simple stories. It was simple to figure out who was who. And, and nowadays, um, 
there's and I don't really I don't really blame the guys so much. There's a lot of really good workers out there uh, doing the best they can, but it seems to me that the people in charge um, just want to glossy this stuff up, and they and they they're doing stuff they saw 20 years ago, which was not really that great of a period for wrestling. I uh, I just like my matches really simple. I, I we talked about it before on the show. Uh, when I go to shows, um, I like to go to lucha shows, which are held in in halls that where they usually do quinceaneras. I can't pronounce it even this morning, but you know they do all kinds of different stuff there. Uh, meeting halls where they have wedding receptions and things like that. I I like it when it's 105 degrees in the room, you know, and and the kids are running around in and out of the ring. To me, that's wrestling. I mean, the fact that they used to always talk about, uh, you know, Vince always talked about how he took all the um, the wrestling out of the, the dirty bingo halls and whatever. No, put them back in dirty bingo halls. That's where it at least felt a little more honest and a little more real. Scott, your thoughts? Yeah, so I, well, I'd go along with that. I, it, it's a, a storytelling thing, and uh, the, the 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 there aren't enough. I don't know what, what they're always claimed to be looking for are stars. There aren't people that. They're all called superstars, but none of them jump off the screen at you like they did even maybe 10 years ago. Uh, there are people that are certainly good or even great at what they do, but uh, no, I mean, that's not just true of wrestling. I mean, it's true of movies. I mean, there are plenty of good actors, but there's nobody that just that just captures you when you look at them and say, wow, that is a movie star. You know, <laughs> but um uh, yeah, I mean, there's plenty of good wrestling, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's it, everyone's trying to do the same thing. It's funny you talk about Memphis being the Muppet Show. There are people that that are doing wrestling now. They took the wrong lesson. They thought, well, maybe if we all dress up like Muppets, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's but, more the Muppet uh, Show it, now. It's more like the Muppet Show now than the idea of Memphis wrestling being the Muppet Show doesn't work because they didn't show you behind the scenes where everyone ignores a camera and you're seeing. Oh, you know, we're just doing a show in front of the camera. How how do we prepare for the show? Where's Fozzie? That's raw. That's not Memphis. That's raw. Well, yeah, you know, there's, 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 it's silly, but I don't I don't get I don't hate watch it. I I I don't get I do watch it, but I don't get angry watching it. It was a long time ago. I just think it is funny that certain things that were just beyond the pale when I first saw them. Like when uh, people like Ron Head and, and Johnny Legend and Jeff Benson were doing these insane backyard videos, it, it was a goof, you know, it was a parody. And you just thought, oh, that's so far gone. That's so crazy. And now <laughs> there's deathmatch stuff and, and raunchy indie stuff that, that doesn't seem so far different than that or, or goes even farther than that goes. Uh, furthermore, when we used to watch Glow, nobody in wrestling was angry at glow because glow didn't take wrestling seriously enough glow was such a variety show and such a comic take on things no one even considered it to be wrestling and no one got angry with it (laughs) but uh and now you look at things and go oh well glow isn't so absurd now (laughs) look what's going on you know it was funny when uh we were doing we were doing incredibly strange wrestling uh, one night, Johnny came to me and said, we're going to do this angle where in the middle of this uh, this angle, someone's going to deliver a FedEx package to one of the wrestlers. And I was like, John, that's a little, that's a little, that's even, even for us, that's a little strange. He goes, oh, that's fine. <laughs> and like three years later, 
China got a package delivered to her by a messenger in the middle of a raw match. I said, "Oh my God, Johnny Legend is right." I mean, this is this yeah. is where this stuff is going. You know, it, it, it's all headed that way, and it's a it's a shame in a way that it is. I, well, I when talk I'm... about you talk about incredibly strange wrestling. I came up years ago. I came up with a great idea. So uh, I was a newsletter reader. I had just broken in as a manager, and I was reading about all the the, uh, the crazy stuff from incredibly strange wrestling. And I jotted down a whole bunch of things that I thought would be cool, and they were all horrible except for one. I had the idea of having someone being billed as the Incontinental Champion. <laughs> and, and just built to a spot every match where in the middle of the match they just start peeing their pants i thought i mean i think this was genius and you know if i came up you know 15 years later i'd probably now be an executive with one of the major companies with ideas like that oh easily easily when we were doing shows with, with johnny johnny always came up with this stuff by, uh, by the seat of his pants all the time and unbelievably the one uh, you know i i invented doink diggler which was the porno clown after after uh, the uh, the movie uh, Boogie Nights. But the one thing that I wanted to do that I never could get convince anybody to do was I wanted to do a lumberjack battle royal. And that is there were lumberjacks around the ring and anytime anybody was thrown over the top rope, the lumberjacks would throw them back in again. So this match would go on forever. There'd be no end to it. It would just go on for the entire evening. Well, I mean, Until I the wrestlers were that, fighting the lumberjacks to get the hell out of there so they could be eliminated yeah, so they wouldn't exactly. have to stay in the ring. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, Dan, uh, hey Dan if we, I could ask you a question before you go. Being a Southern yeah. California alumni, did you ever have any run-ins with noted dirtbag Joey Ryan? <laughs> uh, no, actually, you know, it's interesting. Joey came around the time that I had stepped back for a while. And then uh, the first time that I I seen him wrestle once or twice, and it wasn't didn't really. He, I, the first time I saw him, he was in a tag match with Carl Anderson in a in the the backyard of a not a backyard. They had a parking lot here, and a guy had a wrestling store in the parking lot. And on Sundays, he put up a ring and have matches there. And that's where I saw a lot of really good guys. But um, Joey, I'd seen him wrestle a couple of times and I, he didn't really do anything for me. And then I worked the show right when I came back that he was on, but he really wanted to stay with his own click, uh, Scorpio Sky and, and, and those guys. So I didn't have much contact and I didn't really see any great reason to. I mean, I wasn't really blown away by what he did. And I also, and that's not a good use of terms there, but uh, I wasn't really impressed by anything he did. But uh, at, but at the same time, I, I didn't see any reason to uh, to have any contact with him, and I'm glad that's the situation because mm -hmm. for the longest time, yeah. uh, guys were always like the, the guys. Some of the guys out here looked up to him and stuff, and, and I couldn't understand why. And I and I'm, I'm glad that this stuff has come out in the open, and maybe you guys will realize mm -hmm. that you got to be really careful about what you uh, what you admire in this business. That's true. So Dan, you're here to say you're here to say Joey never groomed you. <laughs> no, no. Okay, just want that on the record. I, 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 I've had a lot of problems in my life never being groomed until my wife came along. No one, <laughs> no one was ever interested in grooming me. Uh, that was the problem. And actually, on that note, it is time for me to leave because I'm leaving on my own damn terms. All right, when well, I'll go, when I'm ready to go, when I'm ready to go. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. It was it's great to talk to you again. It's, it's been a long time, and I I missed this. And uh, Brian, thank you for all you do. Out. Uh, congrats with the the podcast, uh, Scott. I always enjoy talking to you online. 
thanks a lot, guys. I'm glad that I was able to make uh, Mike Lano into a liar one more time. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dan. Well, stay well. Stay in touch. Be we'll well, be back on the show soon, but we love having you here, and uh, thanks for being here today. Pleasure chatting you with guys, you. And take care. You too. Have a good day, guys. Bye. Well, there he is, the late Dan Farron. Of course, if you're new to the game, he's called the late Dan Farron because Mike Lano twice declared him dead on the radio. And it turned out he's very much alive still to this day. Well, I mean, there's a there's a trick to, uh, you know, capturing Mike Lano in a lie. And that is put a microphone in front of his face. Have you ever met Lano? Have you ever had any run? <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, when I I spent a few months in uh, Northern California working for Roland Alexander and the All Get Pro Wrestling. This, I didn't yeah, know that. Just in between, I I was working for Bert Prentice. I actually had moved to Nashville. I was working for Bert. Uh, he 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 let me go, and I ended up uh, going out to California. And r- literally, the day I got there was the day they ran their final Jim Wars show, where they were told they couldn't run it anymore. So all of a sudden, something that might have been a promising job with a promotion that was running multiple shows on a regular basis was down to a company that was running spot shows whenever they could find it. And so it didn't last long. There was no way that I could justify uh, getting a small week, you know, a small salary was probably more a stipend um, given the amount of shows he was running. It just didn't make sense. But, yeah, I was there for a few months. I met Mike a couple of times. Wow. What was his reputation in APW in that locker room? It was, you know, I, I think it's exactly what you think it was. I, I, necessary evil might not necessarily be the proper term, but he was someone that had connections, you know, with the newsletters and was a good guy to be on good terms with. Uh, at the same time, you, you know, you knew what you were going to get. And and that's the thing, you know, I've worked for, you know, worked with, talking about Lano, I've worked for Bert, I worked for Dennis Coraluzzo. In all these cases, I knew full well going in what the deal was. And I think that's the thing now that a lot of fans and people that are peripherally involved in indie wrestling are, are coming to find is they seem shocked by all of this, that that pro wrestling, a business built on fake names and transient lifestyles would actually attract pieces of shit. I mean, this is shocking to them, but it it really is pretty crystal clear if you know anything about the history of wrestling. And that's not to say there have not been a lot of very good people that have uh, been in wrestling and that have that wrestling has done a lot of good for a lot of people. But you understand going in what you're going to get. And so I think if you understand, you know, what you're, you're dealing with when you're working for a Lano or a Dennis Coraluzzo or a Burt Prentice or anything like that, you know, you just keep your guard up and you, uh, you know, you just do, do what you can. So Mike, he gave, you know, APW got a lot of publicity in the late nineties for a small indie company out of California. And I think a lot of that was due to Mike's connections with the newsletter industry. So he's a a necessary evil in some ways. You know, it's interesting. We just talked about the Joey Ryan thing a little bit on the Jim Cornette drive-through, which just went up. So I don't assume you guys listened to it yet, but you know, I made the point wrestling so unique in that someone is taken down like Joey Ryan by being exposed. There have been lots of whispers, lots of stories, lots of things that weren't out there. They all came out all at once. He's done. Wrestling's unique in that even when all that happens, guys don't want to leave. They have nothing else. They don't know anything else. They try to find a way to stay in wrestling. There are lots of good people. There's a lot of dirtbags around wrestling. The dirtbags never go away. 
They never go away. They're always either still involved actively or still involved in the, on the fringe of the business. They never go away and find a new vocation or anything else. It's stunning. <laughs> but the, with Ryan, uh, somebody said, I wish I had written this line. Somebody said, you know, sometimes it's the person you most suspect. <laughs> Can you imagine? There was an event called Penis Party, Joey Ryan's Penis Party. Everyone's doing yeah. this dick flip. Cody Rhodes <laughs> leaves the WWE and does the dick flip at the Cow Palace. Everyone's like, but oh, I had no idea. They renamed this show because they wanted to remove the offensive term. Not Penis Party. They just removed Joey Ryan's name from it. It's still up on high spots as Penis Party. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. That's quite a story. Um, that sort of took care of itself, but that, Al is right. Certainly those, those, those types have always, uh, have always uh, been around in wrestling, and, and there will only be other ones that will uh, come to the fore. <laughs> It'll be it'll be whoever takes his place. It'll be you know meet the new boss, same as the old boss, in all likelihood. Well, the dick spot is done. Like that's right up there yeah. with the pile driver and other moves you'll never see again. You'll never ever see that move ever again because you can't do it. It's just impossible to do it now, which is a good thing. <laughs> that was hardly that actually was the least of it. If it really was, you know some straight arrow type of person that was totally above board <laughs> and was doing this dopey thing, you know, it would still be going on. You know, <laughs> it's not the spot. It's that wrestlers pretty much had no choice, but to take it. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and, and, and that's the whole power structure of professional wrestling, even at this independent level where very few people are, are making a living. There's still that pressure that Joey Ryan does wield enough power in this weird little subculture that if you, you know, if you don't take the dick flip, you're you will lose opportunities for future hot dogs and popcorn and handshakes. That's yeah. true, because, <laughs> again. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to potentially expose the people who said stuff to me and Jim, quite frankly. But one of the things I started hearing was from a couple of guys in Southern California who felt pressured, who were basically told bar wrestling will use you only if you do the dick flip. If you're not going to do the dick flip, bar wrestling has no use for you. So think about what that's saying. You have to grab yeah. this guy's penis in order to get booked and so you yeah. know, it's just, it's so ridiculous. And then the other well, thing is I'll say this in terms of all these allegations and accusations, Jim and I were both told independent of each other by different people. After one of the outbursts that Joey Ryan had on Twitter, trying to act like he's Mr. Woke taking shots at Jim, <laughs> we were told he's got a lot of nerve because we know the stories about him. And we know about him and women and never said anything because we couldn't prove it. We were asking around. I was at least, but then it's all just came mm. flying out and it, it just backs up what I had heard. And I don't even want to hint at who or potentially, you know, where it came from, but people in mm. Southern California knew more than they're letting on. I think about who Joey Ryan really is. He came off as halfway reasonable. Uh, not that I spent a huge amount. Of, like I, I watched that 
that thing, I couldn't help but watch it, you know, that, that apology video, which is a, a, they have to invent a new word to describe what a train wreck that thing is. But, um, but that's, that's about 55 minutes more of Joey Ryan than I ever watched at one time, you know, <laughs> the, but yeah, pressured to take that, to take that move, of course, because it got over and fans loved it. And that's no reflection. They, they just thought this piece of silliness was very funny uh, or hilarious as they like to say, but can you imagine paying to see that guy and you don't see that? <laughs> Yeah, when he, yeah, when he comes to town, that's what fans, any fan that is going to your show because Joey Ryan is booked on it, and there are, and there are fans that, that were that way, uh, otherwise Joey wouldn't be flown into places, if they don't get the dick spot, yeah, they're they're going to be really upset, and, and it, you know, so it's... That that's what it became. And and that's, you know, and part that's my whole issue with independent wrestling nowadays is that these promoters and bookers are not good promoters or bookers. Otherwise, they would know how to build up their local crew and not need to rely on people that have built up social media followings from outside the area. There's the, the whole fact that so many of these indie wrestlers get flown into various places is mind boggling to me, because even as late as the 90s, the late 90s, right. a local indies understood simple booking concepts to elevate guys that lived in your area and how to rotate talent as such that you didn't need to fly in outside names. It just, it's such a weird concept to me. And, and, and so what I say is nowadays indie indie bookers are not bookers. They are matchmakers at best. And most of them are what I call wrestler pickers. In the late nineties, if you flew someone in, they really had to bring value. They really yeah. had to pack a punch and you had to really get value because more than, you know, for the, for the most part, if you ran shows in an area regularly, you were going to draw some people. So if you're going to bring in a, I don't even want to say a Sabu, cause that was one of the bigger names for a little while. But if you brought in a Tracy Smothers, you had to get some value to actually fly him in. I saw some footage of various shows Joey Ryan's been on. These aren't big crowds. They were relatively small shows. It, it says a lot about flying people in and who gets flown in. And it there says a lot one. about how cheap Spirit Airlines is, because most of these guys, are, <laughs> they fly in on, on Spirit constantly. Uh, and so the discount airline business has gotten a huge shot in the arm from indie wrestling. There was one from a, a year or so ago that was astonishing. This was right when the, the spot was really taken off, maybe longer than that. But it was Joey Ryan. And uh, and Jelly in Australia in front of not even 200 people. Uh, and it was all goofy. It was all uh, uh, Legos and the dick spot and then Jelly uh, stapling a picture of Cornette. So it was all comedy involving Cornette. He stapled a picture of Cornette to his head and they just did goof ass stuff in front of less than 200 on the other side of the world. <laughs> and his fans would turn around and go, that guy's so irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's silly. So, wow. I think there's so you many know. problems with independent wrestling nowadays. And you always yeah. want to say you hope it gets cleaned up. But, you know, one of the other things missing is, look, Dennis Caruso had his faults as a promoter. But Dennis was an adult. And the boys had to respect him and treat him like he was in charge. Who are the Dennis Caruso's today? Who who are the adults in the room in independent wrestling? 
these guys, it's now so many of them model things after the punk rock scene. And it's a, it's a DIY sort of a thing. And it's more, it's not, no one's in charge. It's a collective where the, the fans, because there are so few fans that come to their shows, they need to rely on these fans. Thus they, they almost in a way, let them behind the curtain or, or, or give them a lot more control over the product because they need these fans so bad. And really who'd have thought that modeling a business after the punk rock scene, you know, would be problematic and might lead to Nazis getting involved because there was never a Nazi <laughs> problem in punk rock. No, not at all. Very good uh, point. Good point. <laughs> yeah. And that being said, I actually, I uh, feel differently about the whole schlack thing than most people do. Hey, well, first off, he's a dumb piece of shit. Don't get me wrong. But I, I don't think it warrants a complete and utter blackballing from this, you know, quirky little world of independent wrestling um, because of some some people he was affiliated with years ago that he and he doesn't have to fucking defend himself every damn five minutes when someone finds a new you know piece of information. I think they're piling on. Wow. A guy who's an idiot for sure, but is 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 not, you know, it's just it's so crazy to me how uh, these fans now think they can control who gets to work for you know twenty five bucks uh, once every couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> cancel culture is a real thing in wrestling, or at least you know I'm not saying it's always effective, but the attempt is always there. It's not just you know these guys; it's guys in the WWE, it's guys in AEW. Someone's always ready to say, look what I know about you. You're gone. And then when that person doesn't leave, it's like, I'll get you next time. Yeah. And it's also the people that are that are wanting the canceling. It, it's fine for them to research and come up with this info and present it in a well thought out and written fashion. I absolutely they have the right to do that. It's when, and I go back to Schlack, because Brett Lauderdale obviously, you know, has decided. I don't, I don't understand. Oh, I don't he, know what that yeah. is. So you said that before. Oh, Schlack yeah. works for you. Al, you, may have, you, may have to, you may have to uh, detail this a little closer for people over the age of 25. Yeah. <laughs> Schlack is one of the wrestlers uh, primarily known for Game Changer Wrestling. He's a, a deathmatch guy. He has a past loose affiliation with with members of the Atlantic City skinheads and there, there's some there's some very questionable things in his past by all yeah. accounts they're in his past and at some point a few within the last 2 3 years um you know as these allegations and and his past came forward Brett decided to st to stick with him and that it was not enough to cancel him and there are fans that keep bringing this issue up in an attempt to get him canceled. And it's when, you know, it's again, like I said, it's one thing to bring these issues up and to present it and do your research. But once the information's out there, if people choose not to act on it or don't agree with your decision that this guy should be canceled, then, you know, give it up, you know, the, move on to the next thing. They They can't conceive that other people don't have don't come to the same conclusions that they do on whether this person should be canceled or not how do you spell schlack is it like schlitz s-c-h i believe that there's no c i believe it's s-h-l-a-k that's a missed opportunity yeah, get it <laughs> get it right <laughs> i'll tell you what guys let me add someone because he's on standby right now and this should be an easy person to add i'm on the wrong computer again here we go all right, we are adding right now. I won't say his name in case he doesn't pick up, but I think he will. We're calling him. It is dialing, allegedly, according to Skype here. <laughs> I like the narration. <laughs> One ringy dingy. 
Guest, <laughs> are you there? Oh, happy 144th of March, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to uh, opening day Star Wars. Lou Kippelman, you're on the line with me, Al Getz, and the noted humorist Scott Cornish. Ah, uh, yes. How are you guys? My, phone, my phone's bad. Did you say bloated humorist? <laughs> I did not say that. <laughs> Oh. Hey, Lou, what can oh, you tell me about noted. Schlack? <laughs> schlack. <laughs> I, I'm afraid that's the first I've heard of it. Yeah, me too. I just learned that there's an indie you wrestler need, named Schlack. You need some on your new desk. Some Schlack. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is he managed by Bob Vila or Homer Formby? <laughs> <laughs> schlack. <laughs> Boy, wrestlers, well, you know, I wrestlers guess are blessed with the worst names in the majors right. and on the indies. It's amazing. Yeah. I will it, tell you. Well, uh, sorry. Uh, I will tell you, I got the most amazing DM from someone I've never spoken to, although we have many mutual friends who uh, has, for the last 20 years, has worked for major league wrestling promotions and currently works for the leader in sports entertainment. But he out of nowhere, out of the blue, DM me to say, I saw your name pop up. And I have always said for years to anyone that would listen that your whatever Al wants, Al gets catchphrase is one of the three best catchphrases in wrestling history. So there are good wow. names and there are bad names. Slack is a bad one, but apparently I had something good. And I just, it was the most amazing compliment I've ever gotten from uh, someone I've never spoken to before. It was so cool to get. Was it The Undertaker? Mm -hmm. No, it was not the Undertaker. Uh, but that's the only. I'm, I'm not going to play guess who. I'll just say it's it's someone that uh, has made a living off of professional wrestling by working for major companies for the last twenty years, and is someone I have a lot of mutual friends with, but have never met. Uh, so it, it's like you know, name three men that have never been in my kitchen, or meet the man that met Andy Griffith. It's a guess game that I will never reveal the answer to. Uh. Okay. So you hear it here first. It's Steve Lombardi. <laughs> yes. Well, I got to say that's a it's it, it certainly beats. I walk and I talk and I do exactly what I want. Ah, my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like Al okay, King Kong Mosca, ambulatory being. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Big Ange. Mosca Mania, the greatest name for an event of all time. <laughs> How are we going to counter WrestleMania? I got it. Moscomania. Yes. Genius. <laughs> Indeed. But man, Schlack, I never thought I'd, I'd hear a wrestler name worse than like cheeseburger, but <laughs> no, that, that takes a cake. We well, could team them up and get a cheeseburger with a, with, with a Schlack on the side. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> So Lou, Al, that is a great. I'm sorry, Al, that ahead. is a great catchphrase. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You that, go ahead, Scott. It's my fault. Yeah, no, no, shut up, Brian. He's complimenting me. Shut up and let him put me over. <laughs> no, I wanted to say that that's a great catchphrase. It doesn't take any of the luster off, but I've never heard it before now. <laughs> sorry. It, it's, it was so it was so good it could never be spoken in public. It's like Voldemort. Ah, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> <laughs> so Lou, it's opening day Star Wars. How do you think yeah. the Giants are gonna do? And will there be people in McCovey Cove waiting for home run balls outside of that empty stadium? 
Yeah, I mean, San Francisco has its uh, fair share of vagrants. Uh, whether they <laughs> get into the cove or not is uh, entirely up to them. Uh, I, you know, I, I think there will be uh, people on their uh, charter boats and in their canoes and kayaks and whatnot looking for splash hits. Uh, given the relative uh, hitting power of this year's Giants squad, I don't anticipate many balls flying out of the park. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was just looking at the roster this morning, and I'm like, ooh, okay. Yeah, this who's, is... Who's the ace of your pitching staff? God, according to ESPN, the their uh, depth chart, uh, their number one, number one pitcher is uh, fresh off Tommy John surgery, Johnny Cueto. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, Chef Samarja, I think, is number two. Ooh. Yeah. And, who, and, who's where, your, where, and, and who's your big bopper in the lineup? Oh, good God. Let's see. Uh, boy. Well, Hunter Pence is back. I'm a big Hunter Pence fan. Oh, he's good. And, yeah. 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 I mean, he had a, uh, boy, a pretty good year for the Rangers last season. Um, and then Pablo Sandoval still around and well, let's see Brandon belt when he is an injured and Evan Longoria and, uh, let's just say it's a rebuilding your part five here. And how are your minor leagues? You have any good prospects? Oh, you know, I, 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 I haven't been, um, uh, fully vigilant about, how the how the miners are are stacked up. This is year two of Farhan Zaidi as president of the club, so uh, we'll see uh, how he does. C coming from the Dodgers, which uh, you know kind of has that legendary uh, miners uh, legacy. I don't know. Yeah, I see him coming in with uh, a lot less uh, capital to work with on the Giants than in LA. So I don't know. I, I just find my, my overall enthusiasm for what they're calling a, a baseball season this year, uh, kind of waning. Uh, it's weird. It's, I mean, I'm really looking forward to being able to have the Mets on TV. I'll probably, I mean, they're going to be pumping in crowd noise. I was going to say, I'll probably have it on mute a lot, but yeah, I, I like to hear my commentators, but it's 60 games. It's it's so hard to judge whatever this is, this experiment. With new yeah. rules, with new rules. I mean, we didn't even but, talk yeah. about it on this part. We talked about it with McAdam and Sullivan, but runner on second base in extra innings, which I think is ridiculous. Yep. Might, as well, put a, might as well put a keg on second base, too. Well, just I, go full beer league. What I said is, why wouldn't you just send the first batter up the bunt? Get him the third base. That would be the first uh, thing I did almost every time. Right. Exactly. And yeah, I just, uh, just watching the, the few exhibition games so far, um, I compared it to, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the concept of the Potemkin village. And that is, uh, dates back to Tsarist Russia when uh you know the tsar would come through these uh small small towns in russia and uh 
they would they would put up facades like uh, facades of homes or facades of businesses with nothing behind them just to uh, just to uh, project the uh, the facade of uh, prosperity or such. So that's, that's what it feels like with uh, all these cutouts in the stands and whatever, uh, you know, whatever piped in sounds they have. It's like it's, it's entirely like performative and uh, really strangely detached. Yeah, that does remind me that I, I always thought that Colonel Ninochka was hot. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thinking of Mandy Patinkin Village, which apparently is something very different. <laughs> but I have a question. You were talking about McCovey Cove. Uh, I wonder if uh, Wrigley Field, if those buildings across the street that have the bleachers on the roof, are mm-hmm. they are they open and are they letting fans buy tickets and sit on the bleachers to watch a game? I've heard that they're uh, they're gonna open them, of course, with the um, you know with all the distancing uh, that's uh, that's gonna be enforced. So there will be there will be people on rooftops, just not quite as many. They've also but, got little cardboard cutouts of pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the Bay Area's case, seagulls. Yeah. Seagulls. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I don't know about you, but I, I you know, I could be uh, putting my money on the on the Pittsburgh Blue Jays this season. Uh, what say you? A lot of people are talking about the Blue Jays, and I think uh, if they, you know, Pittsburgh or Baltimore is a good choice as far as cutting down on the travel time. Uh, I think one of the issues with Buffalo, aside from it not being the, the stadium not being up to snuff, was there's still going to be more travel for the team um, than, than other teams. So I think moving closer to the epicenter of the Eastern teams will benefit them. And if they can work out a deal, I don't know if it's Pittsburgh or Baltimore, but that, that might give them a leg up that other teams can't have because the other teams are forced to play in their designated home stadium. Right. And uh, here's some obscure MLB history. This would be the, uh, the second team called the Blue Jays that would take up residence in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, back in 42 or 43, um, there was a ownership changed on the Philadelphia Phillies, and the new owner was dead set on uh, calling the team uh, the Philadelphia Blue Jays. So, and that, you know, obviously that lasted a very short period of time, so... Who holds the major league record for triples, Lou? (laughs) Major league record for triples. Let's see. Um, I'll say Marty Janetti. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's three ways. He holds the Uh, double record for three ways. Terminology was uh, (laughs) right. Right. I think, boy. You know, I, I think we're talking about a different uh, basis for scoring. Uh, I yeah, triples. Um, I'll say uh, Rod Carew. That's a good guess. Uh, Al, do you remember what name Jeff Boutrin said earlier? <laughs> was no, it Crawford? So I it, it might have been Crawford. All I know, it was 103 years ago. Oh, okay. So I guess I guess it was the Undertaker then. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, was it? Uh, no, it wasn't Mordecai Three Finger Brown. No, it was a different Mordecai that worked with the Undertaker. Come on. Uh, yes. And uh, Dave Lagana. Sam, Sam Crawford. <laughs> and then he worked with Dave Lagana. <laughs> oh, there's some people out there laughing at that one. <laughs> oh, I'm happy yeah. that putz is gone. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I guess, does that mean carting land is shut down? I guess I never watched that. I heard about it, but I, 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 I I'll, I'll say it now. Cause Jim's not involved. And I kind of, usually I stay quiet about projects that Jim's involved with. I thought the NWA did a really poor job of studio wrestling. The look of the studio was cool. I mm-hmm. thought that was done right. They had the wrong crowd makeup. They had too much goofiness. There was too much hokiness. They completely missed the mark they completely missed what studio wrestling was and they should have had it more of a local flavor they should have gone and gotten kids and old people not just smart fans from various places coming in there to react like smart fans you can't have Mm. studio wrestling with that and again just silliness and bad booking and garbage on top of some okay stuff but what do you guys think I kind of stopped watching after after Jim uh, left. It, it it never really it was interesting to see, but you know it, it never really grabbed me. I, like uh, the I don't know if that's what they were hoping it would do, but I'd lost interest. Uh, lost interest while he was still there, and definitely checked out after he was gone. But uh, and it wasn't the only reason I watched, but. Uh, that didn't do it for me. It's such a strange thing because that's a, another company, even like AEW, that largely is just producing their their whole business is producing one show, one hour, or in AEW's case, a couple of hours a week. I mean, and nothing beyond that. So the show could be whatever you want it to be, for good or bad. Um, and yeah, so I thought it was kind of a meager effort. I mean, but. I mean, you can make that show as wild as you want or as controversial as you want or as serious as, as you want, or I guess in this case, as dumb as you, <laughs> as you want, um, because that's all it is. You can say, well, that angle would never draw. It's not supposed to. We're just pr- producing television content for an hour. Yeah. Well, at least AEW gets paid for their content. You know, mm-hmm. right. NWA show was just a throwing shit against the wall, yep. hoping that you could find a way to make some money off YouTube off that and then potentially yep. sell it to a television station. AEW at least is getting a rights fee. And it's a relatively small one, all things considered in the world of television in 2020. Yeah. But they're getting money. And that's the difference. Yeah, sure. I mean, I can't understand people getting excited about all these cast-off guys from WWE that went and signed up for impact yeah how, how can you make a living working one hour a week you know, working a two-hour show every week 
Well, they must. Yeah. I mean, they must be paying well to have. You know, I mean, I you know, Gallows and Anderson said, uh, you know, the offer was was you know significant. I don't know what that means, but you know, obviously, it's enough for for them to not need to look elsewhere and not need to supplement. I have no idea how Impact makes money. They are um, supplementing, right? though, aren't they? They're going to work New Japan too. Oh, okay. Well, so then, yeah, I guess yeah. that comes into it. Like Ring of Honor, you know, PCO said his contract with Ring of Honor was for more money than he ever made, you know, in his career. Um, granted, there's no, you know, that doesn't take into account inflation, but that means it has to have been at least 150000 a year for Ring of Honor. And, you know, I just don't n- see how Ring of Honor generates the revenue unless it's just, you know, funny accounting with, with Sinclair the way that uh, Turner used to do it with WCW. And the same could be said for Impact with with whoever owns them. If it's just sort of you know shifting money from various other entities that are under the under the the corporate umbrella to to make this thing work, I, I just don't see how these wrestling companies, aside from AEW, because again it's a small rights fee by TV standards, but it's it's a it's a nice piece of change. Yeah. Um, and at the very least, it's enough to, you know, make the project feasible and, and not a complete and utter money pit. And I don't think they are a money pit. I don't think they're before even before COVID. I don't think their financial situation was as rosy as some perceived it to be. But at the very least, the increase in the rights fee in February gave them a safety net and a cushion to you know work towards something you know better. Um, but the other companies, I have no idea how they how they make enough money to pay Gallows and Anderson and Slater and and Cardona and all, and EC3 uh, enough uh, that they wouldn't sign elsewhere. And and again, the other thing yeah. is, given AEW situation, they can't be going around offering crazy contracts to people right now. So if anyone's making an offer, these guys kind of have to take it at this point. Right. Right. Sure. Well, you know, personally, I think AEW is uh, saving up money for more managers. <laughs> I, I'll, I will say this. Al Well, no, not that. Al Gets. Yes, one of the three greatest catchphrases of all time, according to blank, blanky blank. Sean Michaels. And, 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 <laughs> but if the managers they're bringing in, as from my understanding is that most of the crew came in a day early, the arenas were rented for two days and they had the ring set up the day before. If this young inexperienced talent is getting to work, you know, matches under the watchful eyes of Tully and Taz and Jerry Lynn and Jericho and all these people and get good feedback and it leads to them improving, then I see the merit in it. And I think if that's if that's why they have all these managers, um, because they are helping, you know, these young talent improve and evolve and grow. I get it. And I think if you look at how some of the performers have improved in just the last, you know, eight, nine months of Penelope Ford being a great example of that, I, I really think it's probably due to the veterans they have on their staff being able to watch their their matches and give them input and feedback. I have really enjoyed Taz in this run as a manager just a few, I guess I was going to say a few weeks, I guess maybe a couple months now with Brian Cage. I think Taz has been such a good promo. I've really, really enjoyed him. But, and as good a talker as he is though, again, he's not making me say, Oh my God, now I need to see this match. I need to see Brian kill this guy, or I need to see Brian get his comeuppance. It's a, you know, Bray Wyatt, 
was a good talker, but he was not a good money promo. And again, without house shows, without that, you know, those constant needs to generate revenue, the goal of the manager has changed. I think Taz is a good talker. I think him and Cage is a very good pairing, but it doesn't, as long as you admit that wrestling is predetermined now, oh, Taz delivered a very good promo that I think plays into the long-term storyline of this and this. It's not that guttural, Jesus Christ, I want I want to see Jim Cornette get the, you know, get beat up. Uh, you know, I, it's a much sure. different art nowadays uh, when when your product is a TV show. And, and so I just... I can't get behind. I think Taz is very a very good talker, but I don't think he's a very good promo, and I don't think he's, I don't think he adds anything to Cage's act from a you know if wrestling were real point of view. I, I again, it's just it's just people view the product differently now since it's acknowledged that it's a show, it's a performance art, and so it's just the the standards we use to evaluate wrestling in the past just doesn't even apply anymore. That's true. I mean, it's just matches. You're supposed to, I guess, be a fan of work rate to enjoy that show. Yeah, but but limited promos, limited angles. It's it's they the things that traditionally work for American wrestling and that make people care about American wrestling are the things that are widely ignored now in American wrestling. And I'm not saying you have to do a 1986 type show, but I'm saying there are elements of that show that should be applied to contemporary wrestling because they're proven to be something that works. I I honestly disagree. I say lean into the performance aspect of it and, and almost look at Bischoff, what he tried to do with Matt rats. I think if you present the guys that are on dark that uh, have been promoted to the quote unquote, the main roster, like Alan angels as five a member of the dark order. I think if you invest <laughs> the fans in their struggle as you know, and, and you know, give them opportunity to shine and and you know, sort of have the fans. It's no longer I want to see this guy kick this other guy's ass. It's now I want to see this new young guy do well enough that he is given better opportunities and and lean into it in such a way that you're not saying it's it's a work that that fans that are buying into the product still see them earning their earning their stripes by doing better and by winning or by hanging with the top stars but in the same aspect there's another under element to it that this guy is performing well and listening and learning and therefore is going to be rewarded with better opportunities that you can appeal to that smart van so that's that's the investment now that the fan makes in the character is i want him to have a good match so he does so he get makes more money or gets a better spot. You have to you have to end on spot, don't you, Al Gets? Not my dog spot, <laughs> not my liver spot, but my spot rating. That's one of the three best lines yeah. in wrestling history. <laughs> well, that, I, apparently, I, I assume it's yeah. above mine. So uh, we've got Rent. two out of the three. Well, I'll well, have to uh, ask. Yeah, Steve Carino says it is. <laughs> it's not Carino. No, I know no. Carino very well. It's someone I've never met. Oh, okay. Number one, number one uh, on the list. I don't want to, don't want to spring it on anybody uh, too suddenly, but it is reportedly Bruno Lauer. My pathetic bees that way sometimes. <laughs> that or I've got kids. <laughs> I like I've got kids. 
It's it's cute. I mean, again, in the funny sports entertainment world, it works. It's a it's a fun little you know something from a character that's not meant to be you know a, a top guy or Joey Styles you know with the whole when Sid was destroying Carino. He's got a young child you know blah blah blah. You're killing him. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Al, what 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 was just <laughs> to switch the subject unless you don't want to? Um, what was the first? What first grabbed you about pro wrestling? What what was the first live show that you ever went to? Um, the first house show I ever went to was uh, March seventeenth, nineteen eighty five, at Madison Square Garden. There and you the go. thing, and I, what I always bring up is when you think about it, this is two weeks before WrestleMania one, and it's wow. mind boggling to think that they ran the garden two weeks before a show that literally, you know, was, was Vince had placed the whole future of his company on the line one show. That's what um, the live promo with Piper and Mr. T and yep, well, the live Piper's pit. Yep. Wow. Piper and had my that sister, artwork. <laughs> yep, <laughs> my, my, Mr. T with, like, in the hospital and everything. My older sister took me, it was a, it was a birthday present for me and she was a photographer. They actually let her inside the guardrail to take pictures. I don't think we still have the pictures, but the main event was a, a one of those random six man tags. It was JYD, somebody and somebody against Ventura and stud and somebody. Um, and there was also an intercontinental title match with Tito against Valentine um, I, for some reason, I remember Swede Hansen was there. I have no idea why I remember that and specifically <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, but the draw was the live Piper's pit with Mr. T. And I remember it was electric. It was buzzing. Wow. Cool. What about you, Al? Or about, uh, uh, Lou? Oh, well, let's see. I'm taking over hosting this show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's okay. You know, hot dogs and opening day are a natural. Um, Today is National Hot Dog. The day we record, uh, Thursday is, or Wednesday, is National Hot Dog Day. For all right. Me without my horn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's see. My God, the first show I went to, uh, boy. I, I think it was a WWF wrestling challenge taping. In, oh, God. Yeah. In uh, 87. And it was, mm -hmm. yeah, that was right. I, I discussed it on a, uh, on a previous Star Wars, but it was, uh, it also, they also happened to record some of the video for uh, Coco Beware's classic pile driver. And that <laughs> that made a very long evening even longer. Um, oh. So it was it was uh, I guess interesting to my fifteen year old brain, kind of taking in uh, how how the sausage was made. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, as far as the Fed, my first uh, like non uh, non TV taping house show. It was, I want to say, it was the AWA. Uh, at the Cow Palace, uh, WWF show was also at the Cow Palace, and it was uh, it was part of their it was like their version of a of a bunkhouse stampede. They had the uh, bunkhouse battle royals going around the horn, and mm. it and it was yeah got to see got to see the greats kind of on their way out. 
uh, including Ray Stevens and uh, Wahoo McDaniel. And and then uh, Kurt Hennig was the uh, champion at the time, and he was facing DJ Peterson. But, uh, boy, the attendance was so sparse that, mm. yeah, it, it was just, it was, uh, it, it was, you know, kind of watching a, a classic promotion wither on the vine. Uh, it, was oh. just, it was just sort of a melancholy feeling. I tell you, the first, uh, yeah, the first show I think that really kind of got me would have been uh, when the Great American Bash came to town at the uh, what is now the Bill Graham Civic uh, Auditorium back in 87 or 88. I think it was 88 uh, because uh, Barry Wyndham was on the horseman team for the uh, the war oh. games. So, but that was, you know, I, I got to see at least two or three um, Jim Crockett shows in the Bay area before, uh, WCW before they got sold to Turner. So mm. those were, those were hot shows. I definitely dug those. Not bad. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't throw any musical acts on the great American bash that year. No, <laughs> no, no, Scott I think, McKenzie I, or anybody. No, Scott <laughs> Delbert McClinton. Yes. Del- <laughs> He's huge at San Fran. Yeah, no, you know David Allen Coe at the Fillmore. That's uh, no. Uh, who, who said Scott McKenzie? <laughs> oh, of course, of course it was. Of course it was Cornish. <laughs> but yeah, no, that was yeah. The that was after they had jettisoned the, uh, you know, Dusty's choice for musical acts. So. Does anybody think that idea would really draw or was it just an excuse for those guys to hang out with like their favorite country singers? I think it's a mix of two things. I think it ended up being just let's hang out with our favorite country singers, but it was, hey, Vince is using Cindy Lauper. Let's capitalize on this. I mean, that's why the AWA had Wrestle Rock and the original plan was they were going to try to get Prince, which of course didn't. Wow. Happen. But, you know, there's no other reason Vern Gagne would consider that except well, you know, rock and roll is the hot thing now with wrestling. Can you imagine Vern Gagne? Rock and roll is the hot thing. Can we get Pat Boone for Wrestle Rock? <laughs> right. Someone get Country Joe McDonald and the Fish on the Line stat. Jerry Vale, is he available? <laughs> Jerry Vale. <laughs> yes. Stick around, folks. Bobby Vitton will be headlining at the Metrodome. <laughs> you talked about Wahoo, and to bring it back to baseball, I can say with firsthand knowledge that Wahoo McDaniel is not a fan of the New York Yankees. And we'll get mm. very mad if he's already intoxicated and you show up to the bar wearing a Yankees hat. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, he will he will not quite insist, but come as close as possible to insisting that you remove the cap if you want to be in his presence. Wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I guess you should uh, just consider yourself lucky that he didn't pistol whip you and accidentally shoot Dick Slater in the knee. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yes. Wow! Yeah. So well, he did, liked his Braves. Yeah. I remember <laughs> hearing it. Okay. No, he did. I mean, he did. No, he was, I know he's he not a truth, but still, the still just, joke. The idea of the sentence alone is funny. Wow! Who loved his Braves? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I boy, oh boy. 
I'm, I'm just trying to imagine him, you know, take it over for Chief Nakahoma <laughs> at the Atlanta Fulton County Coliseum there. What do you I think don't the know. Cleveland Indians are going to change their names to? Mm. Man. I, well, I, uh, one name I've, I've heard bandied about by people is the Spiders, which is, I guess, what the, there was one Cleveland team. Uh, I don't know if they were in the National League or not in the late 19th century. Uh, that's what they were called. Uh, I, yeah. I forget. I can't, I, imagine what, I can't imagine what any opposing team would say if they were facing the Spiders. Yeah. Just, what about you can't even come back from that? What yes. about the rocks? That's the what I've heard. Rocks. Oh. That's what I've heard a couple of people suggest. That Cleveland rocks. Yeah. Okay. I like works, that. It yeah. works on one point one levels. Yes. <laughs> yes. Indeed. But the uh Macon, Georgia had a minor league hockey team for a few years and their name their team name was the Whoopie. <laughs> uh, it's, it's brilliant marketing wow who named them <laughs> rowan and martin who named that team <laughs> <laughs> yes bob eubanks ron ron fuller <laughs> <laughs> oh man i'll have to ask him next time i talk to him <laughs> no, don't, don't mention my name okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Well, yeah. we had one last person for this session of Star Wars. This may end up being a two-part Star Wars. We'll see. Mm. I have limited time until actual yeah. opening day. But we might yeah. last almost it, as long as a Major League Baseball game lasts nowadays. It might yeah. last as long as the actual season lasts. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Talk amongst yourselves. The, I'll be adding this person. What were you going to say, Scott? Just Is this the train wreck section that you have to add to, or... <laughs> Or is this a good section and the other part is going to be a train wreck? I think this may be the train wreck yeah. section. I'm not sure. I, I thought he was no. doing it geographically because he started with two Boston guys and then he put me and Jeff on and we both uh, presently live in the Atlanta area. So I thought this was all going to be like you know, done by like divisions and geographically. But apparently it's just, you know, whoever is available, come on. And Al Getz is going to stay on until someone actually forcibly kicks him go. off. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I, boy. Uh, oh, is do I hear Brian secretly rooting for another earthquake? <laughs> no, a lightning strike. But, oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Let me, yeah, uh, that works. Let me add this person while we're talking here. I can try to do. I got to remember which keyboard to type into. Here we go. Typing in this number. So let's see. This is our first Star Wars since Labor Day. Is that right? Uh, I don't even remember what the last Star Wars was. Maybe. Okay. I'm a, did we do a Labor Day Star Wars? Yeah, we did. Oh, okay. Well, let me, I, uh, I, I were remembering because we were, you know, uh, Travis Heckle uh, portrayed us as Jerry Lewis and Ed McMahon <laughs> doing a telethon. <laughs> so, At my insistence, I think. You know, yeah. Yeah. At, uh, well, that's when this one will drop. Labor yes, Day. that's right. Uh, yes. Listen, guys, on the line right now is a big baseball fan, a big wrestling fan, the co-host of the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast, Roman Gomez. Roman, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Looking forward to doing this. Of course, I should also mention the president of the Marty Funk Fan Club. Ah. 
Now, you're... I'm the president of the Marty McFly fan club. Well, there you go. On the line with you right now, Roman, we have Lou Kippelman, Scott Cornish, Lou. the noted humorous Scott Cornish, and Al Getz from Charting the Territories. Good to be on with you guys. Yeah. Hello, Roman. Hello, go Roman. aviators. That's a triple-A joke. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what, what <laughs> team do you root for, Roman? You're a Yankee fan, correct? Yes, hardcore Yankee fan. Um, I had season tickets to the Aviators this year. Um, we won a home run derby. So we had season tickets to the Aviators, the AAA affiliate of the Oakland A's. And obviously, we can't go to any games. All the minor league games that were canceled this year. When did they become the Aviators? Because the Mets had a Las Vegas team that were, I think, the 51s? Right. Yeah. Last year was the inaugural year of them as the Aviators. They moved into a beautiful new stadium, not nearly as hot as the old one. It was, uh, on the other side of town, a little closer to the mountains, so a lot cooler, a lot more comfortable to watch a game. And uh, went there twice last year and had a good time and was looking forward to going this year. And as you guys know, everything got flipped upside down. What's it like in Vegas right now? Hot. <laughs> it is hot. <laughs> I mean, you don't even feel like going to the store or anything. Like, you schedule your day around the the, the heat, you know? You try to go to the grocery store at 7 o'clock in the morning because at 10 o'clock... Even in your truck, you're sweating with the AC on. It, it is brutal right now. Are things open? Yeah, yeah, things are open. There's talk of, uh, you know, possibly uh, maybe some of the restaurants might close. Um, I've heard rumblings of that. Some of the casinos I've heard, you know, there's been rumblings of some of them being closed as well. Um, the numbers have been going up here a little bit. And uh, I hope we don't go back a phase because that's, not good for anybody you know people are losing their jobs and uh you know and it's depressing too when you got to pretty much stay locked up inside all day and you can't even go out to eat with your friends it's, it's really depressing vegas must be a really weird place when everything is shut down yes i went um in april the first time in my life i ever got, I got my picture taken in front of the sign that everybody gets their picture taken in front of when they come to vegas it says welcome to las vegas there was about four people there. Normally there's 30 people in line and, you know, it's slowing down traffic and everything. And I just waltzed right up and got my picture taken like a tourist. And it is definitely weird. In uh, April, I went down the strip, pretty much no cars to go up and down the strip and just not hardly see anybody outside. It was, it was interesting. That's nuts. That's yeah. Well, it's a, Quick Thank question. You. Was uh, one of the people in line at the fabulous Las Vegas sign, uh, Barry Orton? <laughs> no, I, I didn't see Barry O, no. Uh, just just thought I'd check. Like he has, right. you know, many other places to be nowadays, but yeah. <laughs> someone oh. recently, I forget who it was, someone posted a clip I saw of uh, T.C. Martin's group. What was it, N NWC? Yeah, the NWC, uh, we had talked about that, Brian. You said you had some of the tapes with the racist wrestler and some of the crazy angles they did. I think his name, you know, I thought about that afterwards. I think his name was Don Juan. Yes, yes, Don Juan was the poor man's Ric Flair, I guess you could call him. He was the racist Ric Flair. 
Because he had the Ric Flair look <laughs> and he was trying to be Ric Flair. And then he would um, just... Oh, Al, I'm sorry, Al Guess, you have uh, something to I'm contribute just, to? I, I, the racist Ric Flair. Um... <laughs> yeah, you're going to you're have to be more specific. He's the more racist Ric Flair. Okay. <laughs> oh, there we go. Specificity. Yeah. I got to find his promos. I don't know where his promo. I don't know if any of them are online. I have them on video. But someone has to. They were out of control. Because it was like casual racism. He wasn't like, like, woo, let me tell you. It was just like, hey, let me tell you about you people. And then he would just like splurt out the most ignorant shit on TV. But then again, I think, didn't they have Jim Neidhart in a Klansman outfit? There. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. was I was in the arena that night, and I told my brother, I go, man, we got to find an escape route. I mean, people oh, were right. hot, and uh, obviously, black people were pissed off, and then there were white people pissed off, you know, because they didn't like somebody impersonating a Klansman, and I'm like, oh my gosh, just get me out of here. Wow. My God. That it's, character, it, that character it, wasn't known as who, it was known as why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boy, it's a wonder they didn't fly out the stormtrooper from Knoxville for that one. <laughs> oh dear! I just found a video on YouTube of the NWC. There's a Don Juan match. I got to see if there's a promo, but the opening clips are great because they're showing you some of the main events. And I remember some of these Cactus and Sabu. Here's one you don't see yeah. every day. Yeah. Terry Funk versus Virgil. Right. In a branding oh. iron match. Was it a branding iron match? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, that has no racist connotations whatsoever. <laughs> I see an interview with one of the Power Twins here. I see a commercial for the Ultimate Warriors Wrestling School. <laughs> the Native uh, Warriors versus Third Dimension and Starman. Okay. The main event, Sabu versus Jim Neidhart. Mm. What, what's funny about that is that Neidhart lost the previous show in his debut match against Duggan, Duggan pinned him. And then they get on the mic before the show was over and say that Sabu's defending the NWC title against the number one contender, Jim, the Anvil Nightheart. So he was <laughs> Oh, and one, Oh, and one. And he instantly became the number one contender. Yes. Keeping track of the records like AEW. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, gentlemen, you guys talk amongst yourselves for a minute. I have found apparently a a treasure trove, some NWC shows on YouTube. I'm going to scan these quickly to see if I can find Don Juan. <laughs> Fantastic. See if I can find anything really foul and racist. To, uh, yes, yes. Treat us, treat us all. Yeah. So, Roman, I know that the NWC shows were at where the Silver Nugget or the... Yes, the Silver <laughs> Nugget, uh-huh. Okay, I'm trying. To, I'm trying to think. I've been, you know, having been to Vegas a few times in my life. It, it was is the Silver Nugget. Was it like way in north in Las Vegas? Yeah, it, it's in it's in North Town. Um, I don't want to say it's predominantly a, a black area, but there are lots of blacks that live in that area. So to do a KKK angle in that part of town with, I think the Junkyard Dog was on the car too. So there was oh, lots God. of black people there and you're going to do a racist kkk angle and everything and i was like this is this is ridiculous you know like wow i just 
come to the matches to watch matches, not have to worry about getting killed. You know, like this is insane. Yeah. Wow. I, I can only imagine, uh, you know, backstage at the show and there's Neidhart in the Klansman uniform and JYD comes in and says, oh, hey, Dick. <laughs> oh, no. Nah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm looking at footage. <laughs> Was there another guy in a white hood? Who is this? The thug? The match is the thug yes, versus the, the Black Hawk. And this guy's wearing this guy's wearing either it's a Klansman hood or he pulled his dunce cap too low on his head. Oh god. <laughs> yeah, the the thug actually had potential. He he did some decent heel promos and was he actually got the crowd to hate him and he had potential, but uh yeah, being part of that KKK angle was definitely not a good career move. Oof. Wow. Boy, that's like that reminds me of Bill Tab as the Black Assassin uh, <laughs> in Florida. It was like I remember seeing him come out in on WCW and helping out Dory Funk against somebody. Might have been Mike Rotunda or something, but it, it was I refresh my memory. But did he wear like a black hood that looked like a Klansman I, hood? I, in in WCW, yeah, I I believe they gave him a he. I remember he jobbed as Bill Tab, and then he came out under a hood with a different name, and you could tell because there weren't that many black guys like three fifty that you know move like him. I'm like, oh, that's got to be Bill Tab, you know, under the hood. Yeah, but I can't I can't remember what his name was when he was when when he was wearing the mask though. I can't remember I th- what his. Uh... I want to say it was like the Black Assassin. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, and it was just it was it was just another one of those winning uh, angles from the uh, dying days of Florida. Mm-hmm. I remember one weekend on television that Bill Tab got the hat trick. I saw him job on whatever NWA promotion I was watching, and AWA and WWF. Now one of them might have been a rerun, but I literally saw wow. him job on three different shows in one weekend. <laughs> Wow, that's got to be a record. No doubt. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> yeah, my he, goodness. He might have had some like... indie work, too, that we don't know about. <laughs> Jeez, all well, kinds I, of TV I, time. I, wow. So I, saw, I saw some Smoky Mountain results recently. Somebody posts, you know, results for whatever card happens on a certain day. So they had Smoky Mountain results from the same day. Let's say it was June 27th. For three years in a row, June 27th, 92, 93, and 94, or 93, 94, 95. The point being that um, Killer Kyle lost on the same day in the same promotion three years in a row. (laughs) Also noteworthy. (laughs) I was going to say, if it was to the same opponent, that would really be interesting. (laughs) I think it was Bill Tad. No. Oh, man. I don't know how they kept him around for years, and he never got a win of any kind. He wasn't terrible or anything. He was just no, i definitely seen worse than him. Definitely seen a lot oh. worse guys than him. Oh, yeah, no, no. I, I For sure it wasn't a, a, a reflection on him, but just, well, he doesn't have a problem, so <laughs> let's just beat him again. All right, guys, <laughs> I found, I think, a clip of Don Juan. Let me play okay. this right now. I haven't screened this in advance. So I don't know how filthy it is, or even if it is one of his filthy ones, 
I believe the commentator, is this Billy Anderson? Wrote? Mild Bill, yeah. Right. Yeah, Wild, Wild <laughs> Bill Anderson was, he was the interviewer. So, uh, yeah, that's probably Wild Bill that interviewed him. All right, let's go to this interview right now. You go get your man and take it to the locker room, Buffalo Jim. This is finishing up the previous segment. Going to Bill Anderson in a moment. Wrestling fans, the most disgusting human being in the NWC is on his way in right now. Come on in, Mr. Arrogance, Don Juan, and the new manager, Barbara Blaze. I've told you, Billy Anderson, it's not a matter of arrogance. It's a matter of being convinced. When you're the best, you're the best. That's the bottom line. Say it. Don't spray it. Your old lady likes saliva. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. If you don't mind, go do our laundry. There's not quite enough camera space for the three of us. You should show some respect for women. I'm the king of showing respect. Uh. You know, last time I was here... In North Las Vegas, Nevada, in the NWC, I promised to do three things. Number one was to make love to your women here, and I've already done that. Number two was to take these Johnny Lunch Buckets money. I've already done that. And number three was to kick anybody's butt that gets in the ring with me. Does that mean Zuma, too? That means Zuma, precisely. The last time I was here, he was a blind squirrel finding a nut. Well, consider yourself happy, Zuma, because it ain't going to happen again. I'm going to send you back to the military with the rest of them homosexuals with their haircut. Oh, show some respect here, good God. I told you about respect. If you happen to be a female, I'll show you some, but you're not, Billy Anderson. Now, if you don't mind, I'm going to go have a couple slippery nipples down on the beach. Slippery what? Oh, my God. You heard it, wrestling fans. What more can I say? Well, there it is. First of all, Billy Anderson out of control. Just so wacky here. But ah. that was one of the milder Don Juan interviews that I've seen. Oh. I've never oh. seen this one before. Just now, now you got me, Brian, wanting to go through my NWC collection and watch all his <laughs> interviews. I'm, I'm curious what else he said. It's been a while since I've seen him. Yeah, there was no overt racism there. It was just homophobia and, uh, I guess... Just a little graphic when it came to he wants to see yeah. the saliva of the different women or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. See, yeah, yeah. I liked it when Don Juan changed managers and Dominic Valenti uh, became his newer manager. <laughs> what was his manager? Barbara Blaze. Do you remember her, Roman? Bar yeah, she uh, she wrestled in uh, Mula. Used to have shows here for the women's convention, and Barbara Blaze would come down and wrestle. Um, I think she was based out of San Bernardino, if memory serves correct. So she would just come down, you know, the three hours or whatever and work with Don Juan. Okay, hold on, because this episode, by the way, the three matches on this episode are the Thug versus the Blackhawk, Johnny Psycho Payne versus Carlos Mata, and mm -hmm. Lil Haystacks versus Silver Wings. But this may be, may be the main event right here, Billy Anderson interviewing the Ultimate Warrior. Let's hear this. I don't know what this will be, but I have to assume it'll be something. Oof. One of the most devastating wrestlers of all time. He's a former Intercontinental Champion. He's a former World Heavyweight Champion. Oh, my God. Come on in, Warrior. Hey, Billy Anderson, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Hanging out here in the oh. NWC, Right, we got the finest talent. For you, brother, because I can remember a day when you could even answer a challenge. <sighs> wow, well. Maybe you need to show up at Warrior University and take care of some of that. Oh, my. But in regards to the champions... <laughs> And the legends and the myths. There has been only one warrior. There have been those that have tried to duplicate, imitate, 
But nobody stands as great and powerful as the ultimate warrior, formerly the ultimate warrior, the warrior. Call me <laughs> Mr. Nobody. The passion I have for taking challenges and destroying them and laying them to the warriors that have already made the sacrifices, it makes no difference. Call me whatever you want. You know, Warrior, you've always said believe in yourself and you can conquer anything. And I know you followed that. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with the top talent here? responsible for it being here. I'm not here to judge. I'm not here to critique. I'm here to watch and see those superstars in the NWC that are rising up to the challenge. And those that are big enough and man enough to stand before the warrior. Come on, I seek you out. All I know is Sabu, JYD, I don't care who you are here in the NWC, you better watch out because the warrior is, he's here! Oh my! Boy, there's a match we missed, Sabu versus the warrior. <laughs> oh God. Or warrior versus JYD. <laughs> yeah, really. By the way, that isn't the first yeah. promo I've heard from him where he talks about the little warriors taking the ultimate sacrifice. What the hell is that? Uh, getting the comic book? <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Wow. Uh, oh, Lord. I thought he was far, far too coherent. I think that was the invitation uh, replacement warrior that I've heard so much about. Well, this well, is I was carrying with the sunglasses on, and he doesn't have the face paint over like his eyes, the whole schmoz. He just mm. has it on his cheek. <laughs> he has the warrior like insignia oh, the, the, on his cheek. Okay. Oh. Oof. All I can say is yeah, Billy. Brian. I think Billy Anderson was a graduate of the Bob Luce School of Interviewing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, he's so bad. <laughs> you have to watch these. A little just to over see the how top. He is. Yeah, he's so over the top. I guess you you can hear his voice, but his eyes are constantly rolling, and he's making faces. It's really bad. Oh God. Wow. Yeah, Herb Abrams told him to tone it down. <laughs> I'm looking yeah. for more. I'm looking to see if there's any other Don Juan promos. Because that's really <laughs> Here's Mr. Hughes doing a promo. Cactus Jack doing a promo. JYD doing a promo. Van Dam was also in the NWC. Uh, someone Red with Bloody. a do-rag. I don't know who this is. Uh, oh, Billy Don Andy. Juan on the mic. Hold on. Hold on. We have an update. <laughs> Hold on. This is the August 5th, 1995 episode. By the way, these episodes uploaded by our pal Roy Lusher. Let me pause it until I can get to this. Where is this? This is approximately 20-something minutes into this. Okay. Let's go to this. Is now in. Apparently, this is an interview segment called The Doctor's Office. Mm-hmm. Come on, Waltzy Matilda. Come on up here. We don't have all day. Mr. Arrogance, step right up here. Let's go. I'm going to let you say your piece. Come on. You can have the microphone. On the screen right now is a fan holding up a sign that says Don Juan is a homosexual. faster than these casinos do with three businesses. 
The first one is I'm going to open a watermelon stand for you black people. Stop. The next thing I'm going to do is open up a secondhand store for you white people. And the third thing I'm going to do is open up a target range to get rid of the homosexuals in this part of town. Like I said, out of control, this guy. And yet to wow. see he's very calm. He's just, he looks facially like Flair. He's wearing a Ric Flair-ish robe. And he just goes in the ring and he does this promo. This isn't even backstage. This is in the ring yeah. in front of everyone there. Wow. I Boy, and his sick burn against the Caucasian race is opening up a thrift shop. Yeah, secondhand store. That's right. Yeah, that's that's weak tea. Why didn't you say mobile home it, park? I take offense to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, somebody keep it on phone stars. Apparently they've taken the mic from him. Now he's just talking into the camera, but you can't really pick it up well. It looks like he's lost the mic. And uh, now he's got Barbara Blaze with him. And that's it. It just it cuts right to the next thing. It is a battle royal on this show. The Navajo Kid versus RJ Rodriguez. <sighs> and Judge Dredd versus Gary Key. But they have names and they have guys I don't know at all. Well, funny thing about Gary Key, he was one of the second doinks at one of the shows here, and they had to delay the show because he was still at State Line, which was like 40 minutes away from the Silver Nugget. So we were having the show being delayed so an enhancement talent can be the second doink to do a run-in. Uh. <laughs> you gotta love the indies. Every, every indie had about five doinks, I think. For anyone wondering, this is 1995. Don Juan. I, I've never seen this guy anywhere else. Here he is wrestling Zuma, who was KGB in AAA. That's a name I've heard. Really nice guy. Really nice guy. He uh that's the guy, Brian, that I had told you when I was in the when I work in the convention industry, he was actually working there too, and he was surprised I remembered him, you know, and uh talked to him. He's a trainer now for one of the for an independent league here in town. What do you know about this Don Juan guy? Was this the only thing he ever did in Vegas in wrestling? Yeah, that's the only thing. I haven't seen him on any other indie shows anywhere besides Vegas. That was the only time I saw him was at the Silver Nugget, just doing those uh, handful of shows and never heard from him again. Gee, I wonder why Maybe he was the top off. student at, uh, might have been the top student at Warrior Universe. <laughs> he, uh, clearly, yes, he, he paid attention he, he, on... He paid attention to uh, homophobia day in Provon class. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Every day was homophobia day in Warriors promo class. Yeah, he, he got his Ph.D. in distrucity before they added on the uh, Muslim phobia module for, for, the, for the graduate degree. Wow. Well, there's a taste of Las Vegas wrestling, 1995. <laughs> Klansman Jim Neidhart. The racist Don Juan, as well as Sabu, Terry Funk, Virgil, and Cactus Jack. And Van Dam. And Van Dam. And Junkyard Dog, I guess we could say. Mm -hmm. And and to show you like how much they dropped the ball 
Sabu and Van Dam were feuding in ECW at that time. And never once did they have them lock horns at the Silver Nugget. You know, Paul Heyman did all the groundwork, you know, set the thing up. They could have just said, hey, you know, those two brought their feud from the East Coast. To Bay. Never once had them get in the squared circle against each other. That's a shame. I saw them wrestle at the ECW arena one night and the ring broke. And it was one of the hottest nights. It was the middle of summer. And it was sweltering hot in there. And they had to, like, fix the ring. And it was the end of the night. It took forever. Then as soon as the match starts, they hit the ropes. The ring breaks again. And Sabu, and Sabu still was doing his high spots. Even though it would take a little longer because he would have to, like, try to balance himself for the triple jump moonsault. Mm-hmm. Hey, Al, did you go to the uh, arena much? Because obviously I remember you in the Lariat going back and forth with some of those guys. So you were, you know, you were, you knew them. Did you ever actually yeah, I, go to any of those shows and sit in the bleachers? I did. I went a few times. The first ECW show I went to, uh, are we allowed to curse on this here podcast? Oh, feel free. Yes. All right. The first ECW show I went to was the infamous Fuck Sabu show. And my friend and I, and this, as, as crazy as this sounds, the night before we went to UFC, it was either four or five in Charlotte and drove overnight up to Philly to go see, yep. uh, this was the, uh, the, the tag team three-way match where um, Sabu got replaced by Rick Steiner. And then I did a bunch of the fan convention shows. I was there for Pillman's uh, uh, debut when he attacked the fan with the fork. Uh, and a couple other shows. I was there for the last Guerrero-Malenko uh, match, August of whatever year that was in the ECW arena. So, yeah, I ended up going to a few arena shows over the years. I am in the minority in that I always felt by and large, that the Guerrero-Malenko matches were somewhat overrated. But what was it like being in the building for them? I I gotta say, I thought the, uh, was it Scorpio, Guerrero or Scorpio Malenko, uh, when Scorpio won the title, uh, his second night in, that was, that was on the Fuck Sabu show. Um, uh, for, I forget who it was against, but he, I thought that match was better. Um, but the Guerrero Malenko, I think, I think now if people watch it, they will, will feel a lot less strongly about it. Um, I think in this case, since it was the last match and they had properly promoted it as such that for ECW fans, there was that attachment to them and the idea that they're graduating and moving on, um, was sentimental and at that and which is interesting because normally you know paulie would rile people up against the enemy and the idea would be that wcw stealing these guys from us blah 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 you sold but, out um, you sold that would be the idea right but i i think he found the proper way to promote it was not to take that particular tint on on this match and to just present it as this is your last chance to see them. This is going to be something special. You know, you'd be a part of it. And I actually was front row for that. And on the home video version, I, I'm cut off, but I believe on the version that originally aired on TV, as they're making their way around the ring after the match, I, I'm uh, hugging or shaking hands with uh, Dean. How surprised were you when Dean grabbed the mic and actually talked? Because that was totally against his shooter character. 
And again, that adds part of the that the, you know they presented this. I don't. I hate using the term non-canon, but the way the match was framed, it was as, as something outside the norm, even you know for ECW that this is a special event that you know the the normal rules don't apply. You know, I was a uh, hello. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> you said you were talking about being at the the Fox Sabu show. I think I was at the show where he came back after uh, being told to fuck off. <laughs> lights go off. Lights come on. There's Sabu, and of course, all is forgiven instantly. <laughs> oh yeah. Instantly. <laughs> but what what was humorous about the show was the friend I drove up with. Um, wasn't a huge wrestling fan. He was a big UFC fan, but he enjoyed it just enough to be willing to make this trek with me. We lived in Asheville, North Carolina at the time. And when Rick Steiner came out unadvertised, the fans started chanting the Michigan fight song. And my friend actually had gone to Michigan. So he was wow. all sorts of confused. He had no idea who Rick Steiner was because he barely was a wrestling fan. And all of a sudden people are singing the, the Michigan fight song. And he's like, what the hell's going on? I'm like, oh, the, this guy went to Michigan. He's like, oh, cool. All right, cool. Which UFC show did you go to in Charlotte? Was that the one with... This was the Shamrock Gracie uh, super fight and the one where Severn won the tournament over Oleg Taktarov. Oh, that was... Okay, wow. See, that's my favorite era of UFC to this day. Yeah, I went to that one, and I went to the one in Gainesville, Georgia, a few years later, and I um, I sat right behind Mike Tenay. Mike Tanay went to Gainesville, Georgia to go to the UFC. Interesting. Yep. This was the one where their Mark Coleman won the finals by default because everybody got hurt. It was when that when Scott Ferrazzo beat Tank Abbott, but then Ferrazzo got hurt and couldn't continue. So they brought in an alternate who won his semifinal bout, but then he couldn't continue either. So they just said, hey, Mark Coleman wins. When I did Yama pit fighting, one of Bob Meyerowitz's friends, who was an informal advisor, was Andy Anderson, who famously on the show you went to in Charlotte, fought Big John Hess, who cheated. He he gouged his eyes. You go back and watch the footage. Andy Anderson in 2008 was still, he still wanted to like kill John Hess <laughs> for doing that. Like he would talk about it all the time that he was cheated out of the UFC. But uh, yeah, and John Hess won. I think it was he won by TKO because they didn't call the gouge. He was cheated. He was cheated in a sport with, with that built itself as having no rules, even though they had five. Yeah. You know, it's 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 always I love that era of UFC. I love the actual events and I just love the background of all the battles they were having with different governments. I believe that was the night where the was it the sheriff in Charlotte went up to Bob Meyerowitz and his brother and like threatened them. That, you know, they would shut something down and David Meyerowitz said, you know, who's a lawyer, he was like, you know, we have the legal ability to do this. We, whatever he said, he tried to, like, give a justification, a legal justification for what they could do. And the sheriff was like, well, that's fine, but I'll just arrest you and we'll figure it out. <laughs> and it was like, okay, whatever you want, whatever you want. <laughs> It, it, it was an amazing era. I'm, we've been talking, we were talking about books earlier. I'm still working on Shamrock's book. Um, but, you know, some of the stories there from his time in the early days of the UFC and, and his struggle, you know, having to choose between Pancrase and UFC and all, and, and the, you know, the fact that he chose for a while UFC and then all this sort of chaos happened. Um, it's, uh, it's amazing that they survived 
uh, what they did because they were you know on on the thinnest line of 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 all as far as being completely shut down. Bob Myrowitz told me. I want to say it was Detroit, but I could be wrong. Let me see. Was it? De- yeah, it was Detroit. It must have been the Kobo, May 1996. That was an idea. We we're going to do Dan Severn versus Ken Shamrock. And I believe it was the day of or the day before. Where It was the day before the ruling came down that you weren't allowed to, to punch. Or to something. punch. Yeah. Yeah. And they had the meeting the night before in the hotel room. And Bob told me Ken Shamrock went completely fucking insane and flipped out because of this rule change. And he said it was like one of the most frightening things he's ever seen. Shamrock went completely apeshit in front of everyone. Everyone that was there in that room for that meeting, probably uh, John McCarthy and Dan Severn and his camp, Phyllis Lee, and then Bob Shamrock. And he said Ken Shamrock went nuts that night in the hotel room. So I miss, I wish... It's impossible to do that type of event ever again, but I miss those early. Well, they've got the they've got the bare knuckles fighting. It's not the same. It, I haven't I haven't seen it, but uh, huh? I, I can't went wa- to I can't, what were you going to say? Number, no, just that I went to. I was never a, a MMA fan, but just because it was early and kind of a happening thing, and I wanted to see what what it was all like, I went to the one in Buffalo, which maybe was ten, like a real early one. I'm trying to even think what the main event was. I think it was Taktar up against somebody else. Number maybe. seven, it was Ken, Ken Shamrock versus Oleg Taktarov. There you go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I went to that. Paul Varland, the polar bear. <laughs> I saw when I was at the ECW arena when he was there. Wow. Against Taz, <laughs> who he towered over. That's right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I was thinking, say. <laughs> well, let's, let's get this one question out of the way. And it's a tough one to do this year, but Al, I'm going to start with you. Who's going to win the World Series? The team that, um, with an analytics department thinking way outside the box right now. Now, I know that's a cop out. I mean, I think obviously there are, the favorites seem to be the Yankees and the Dodgers and and a few other teams. But I think given the shortened season and how more tightly packed the games are, uh, teams that are better understanding of how to rotate talent in and out as opposed to relying on your starters. Most of the time, I think teams that are looking to sign utility players. I know the Braves just. Uh, Signed Charlie Culberson, who plays multiple positions and even pitched for the Braves a couple of times last year. I think teams with that mindset that are willing to not just go against the grain, but completely and totally overhaul the system into how they use pitchers and this and that. I think now is the time more than ever that those data wonks um, that are really thinking outside the box are going to have a chance to get a significant edge. Kevin Sullivan and John McAdam both picked the Tampa Bay Rays. Just for the record, Lou, who do you think will win the World Series? Oh boy! I yes, I it's have. impossible, right? It's a it's like an impossible question this year. I know, I know, boy. And if you know, I think the the on brand answer for twenty twenty would be the uh, Houston garbage can lids, but. Uh, <laughs> 
No one's even I mean, talking about that anymore. Isn't it crazy? No kidding. And it's like, boy, I, I remember in the in the shortened spring training uh, this year when, you know, people were, you know, people were drilling the Astros hitters in the ass and whatever. And I'm, you know, who, yeah, who knows if there anybody's going to be doing headhunting if, uh, you know, no fans in the in the stadiums or whatnot. But uh, yeah, I I have no good answer. I I just feel so disillusioned about uh, having a uh, this shabby makeshift season happening in the first place. Uh, I don't know. Maybe even as a Giants fan. Uh, this pains me to say, but huh, maybe the Dodgers will, you know, finally uh, break through and and get the World Series. Scott Cornish, who's going to win the World Series? Oh my gosh, I'm not going to insult any true fans of baseball. I love the game of baseball, but I don't I don't follow it. Uh, like I said, I have friends that love the Mets. I'm I have no idea, uh, but if they're happy, I'm happy. Uh, a couple of friends that are big uh, Oakland A's fans, same thing. If, if, if uh, A's do well, Mets do well, I'm happy. Uh, but if you want a prediction, uh, I want to make this real clear. Mets are going to chew upon the beetle nut this season. And when they win the pennant, there's going to be a lot of feasting and rejoicing. Roman make Gomez? <laughs> Roman Gomez, who's going to win the World Series? Oh, this, this is harder than any other year because – Something I haven't heard a lot of people talk about, what I think could be the X factor, believe it or not, is the pandemic. If you think about it, if you've got two teams that are neck and neck going down to the last couple weeks and somebody ends up with corona, I mean, wow, that could just – because, you know, you got to be quarantined for two weeks and this and that. And it, it's really hard because besides just the normal injuries, I still think that there's going to be a major player that ends up uh, – hurting a team because they end up coming down with something. So it's, it's really hard. I mean, on paper, of course, the Yankees look good. Dodgers look like they're going to have a strong team, but it's just, there's so many X factors. And then with the short season, it just, uh, an unknown team could get off to a hot start and go 10 and two. And before you know it, they're the front runners, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the most unpredictable season we've ever seen. The correct answer, the New York Mets. But we all knew as that I predicted, yeah. As as you predicted, and as I predict as well. But I'll tell you what, guys, we're gonna wrap up this portion of Star Wars. There may be some extra innings this year, but we'll see what happens. But as we begin to sign off here, I have no idea how we're gonna do this, actually, now that I think about it out loud. We've had Don Juan, <laughs> we've had so many highlights and lowlights here on this episode. Any closing thoughts? Let me go to you first, Roman Gomez. Well, something is the schedule, too, that, uh, you know, the Reds on paper are going to be a good team. And then you look at their schedule, their first 25 games, they're playing cupcakes like the Royals, the Pirates, the Tigers. I mean, that could definitely play a factor. And, uh, yeah, I think the schedule, I mean, they did the best they could to try to make it even. But there's certain teams that are obviously going to have an advantage as far as the schedule goes. It's a good point. Closing thoughts, Lou Kippelman. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's, 
Uh, yeah, this year is going to be something else. And oof, I, yeah, I don't know how much enthusiasm I can muster for whatever they're passing off as major league baseball for the next few months, but eh, what the hell? I'm looking right now. Someone just, I guess this Hannibal dope put out a video <laughs> last night, upset about Jim Cornette and me talking about him for, I think 30 seconds <laughs> on this oh, week's shit. show. And he's, you know, one of his big arguments is that he has more subscribers and more overall views than us. And he's right. I um, have over 100 million views. Now for the record, he's had his channel up since 2013 Ours has been up since November 2018, and now the people are getting into it. They're sending pictures of how many views he gets and how many views we get, and we're crushing him. It's just he has more overall views because he's been doing it for for six years before we were. But mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna pass him in a few months, and then we'll see what he whines about. Then that fucking daft, fucking slope faced idiot. <laughs> 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 that Canadian homunculus. Oh. What would happen if Lenny of Mice and Men got involved with the wrestling business? You'd get Hannibal. Fucking yes. Moron. Uh, here's another shoot interview with the rabbits. <laughs> yeah. No, he's gonna he's about to have a real He's about to really have a rude awakening when we pass him in every single metric he wants to look at, which is gonna happen fairly soon. But he actually created, did you see he actually created a little graph showing his numbers? I see this graph. I mean, that's the crazy thing. His graph, which we're not far behind, is stupid because he's judging it from 2013 to 2020. And ours is from November 2018 to now. So less than two (laughs) years. And we almost have as many subscribers and we will have more in the next several months. And per video. Again, someone did like a side-by-side of like how many views his last 10 videos did and how many views our Somebody. last 10 videos did. And we're crushing him. It's not even, he's not even in our league. What an idiot. Why would Wait he bring and- attention to this? Wait until Cornette and his podcast co-host producer see my pie chart. <laughs> <laughs> now, Now, by the way, the show went up really late, the drive-thru, because we recorded it really late. So it didn't go up till after midnight. So somewhere yeah. like in a range of like a few hours, he heard that and immediately put up this little video yeah. where obviously Jimmy's yeah. in his head. And, uh, right. Hamilton, Ontario is the city that never sleeps. I didn't know <laughs> Abdullah would cut me. I had no idea. <laughs> I thought we would just do hip tosses and arm drags. Even <laughs> though we had had bloody matches before that bloody match. I heard. I saw on Wikipedia the show's about opening day. That's baseball, right? I heard a lot of people are talking about baseball. What do you have to say about baseball? <laughs> God, when you're slow down, hold on. The observers here. (laughs) I can't stand these staples. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> I'm more entertaining and lucid when I'm wearing a coffee pot. <laughs> I made a video at 1 a.m. in my do rag. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make sure everyone knows that I'm awake. I'm always awake. I have a side deal with I wonder, Brian Blair. I wonder if I should scrub that video where I wore blackface. <laughs> that is still the best. Is black yeah. something to think about? <laughs> well, Scott, any closing words? Any closing words? I hope that all the ball fans, baseball fans out there, get something that they want out of this season and have a good time. And I want to thank Josh Cantor. He is the organ player for the Boston Red Sox. And during this uh, time off with no baseball, he did an afternoon show every day for about a half hour or an hour where he took really unusual and eclectic requests. He called seventh inning stretch. And it, I enjoyed listening to it. I still enjoy watching it. And uh, and uh, it got a lot of baseball fans, especially in the Boston area, uh, through this period uh, with uh, something to hope for in the future. And uh, thanks for having me on. I wish someone would play with my organ <laughs> in Hamilton, <laughs> Ontario, with my do-rag. <laughs> oh, Lord. And I shoot. <laughs> I enjoy being an amateur statistician. I have all the views in the world. <laughs> uh, proof that wrestlers will take money from anyone. From anyone. <laughs> all you need to do is have money and a wrestler will talk to you. I've never paid a wrestler to talk to me, and I never would. This guy pays these guys, and he thinks he did something. It's 2.30 in the afternoon, and I haven't done shoot angle today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Al gets anyway. closing words. Uh, opening well, Star Wars. Uh, we're talking about organists. I want to put over the Atlanta Braves organist, Matthew Kaminsky. Yeah. Because every time Adam Eaton comes to town, I get to hear the Midnight Express music play. You know, he's a 6 That's or 5 cool. listener, actually. Good guy. Nice. I, oh, awesome. And uh, no, I, I hope that baseball fans get something out of the season. It's not going to be what it normally is, but again, it's baseball. And just like pizza, um, you know, day old refrigerator pizza is still pretty fucking good. So I think baseball, <laughs> even if you're a baseball fan, I think even this form of baseball with cutout fans and stands and runners on second base and the National League having designated hitters, it's still baseball, so enjoy it, and uh, the Mets suck. Well, fuck you. What, what was that? Where did that come from? What the fuck? <laughs> wow. We can't wow. end on that note, but uh, listen, I want to thank everyone for appearing here on the show. Of course, you can hear Al Getz on the brand new Charting the Territories podcast at chartingthepodcast.com, or just look for Charting the Territories on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you find your favorite podcast, and don't forget to check out chartingtheterritories.com for some of the coolest wrestling research out there today. Check that out today. You can hear Roman Gomez on the Mid-Atlantic Championship Podcast at midatlanticpod.com, also available wherever you find your favorite podcast. Roman and Mike Sempervivi do a great job recapping some of the great moments 
in Mid-Atlantic Wrestling. They are right now in 1982. Check it out today and watch along wherever you have your Mid-Atlantic Wrestling collection, if it's on the network or if it's somewhere else. Of course, Lou Kippelman, you may hear him on various shows. He's the producer of The Studcast and Breaking Kayfabe and Stick to Wrestling. John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight, I'm probably forgetting like nine shows. But he does so much for this network, one of our MVPs for sure. Well, I guess you can't have Oh, yeah. Also, those. yeah, Pro Wrestling Spotlight then and now. That would be the other one. I said that, didn't I? No. I didn't say that? Oh, I thought I did. Well, nope. that show too, where he hears plenty of Sorry Lou when we're recording. <laughs> yes, I'm uh, keeping the tally on Sorry Lou and I Can't Speak. <laughs> that's my other go-to line when all of a sudden i start talking gibberish but of course lou is a big part of the network and we love him and thank him for everything he does and the humorous scott cornish soon to be on 605 once again that's the reason 605 hasn't been out in a little while we're waiting for scott blame him yeah well people a preview i the episode 103 is going to come out right about the same time as Howard Stern, the high school years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see about that. But for everyone that appeared on the show, thank you. Of course, we had great guests earlier, like Dan Farron and Jeff Baldron, Kevin Sullivan, and John McAdam. And like I said, I think we may get some extra innings, so stay tuned to your podcast feed. Episode 103 should be out fairly soon. Hopefully now I'll have some time to edit it, unless, you know, there's another big wrestling scandal or something. But until next time, you can follow me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can follow the 605 Super Podcast on Twitter at 605Pod and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network at SuperPodcast. Don't forget to support the Super Podcast by going to our store, tinyurl.com slash SuperPodStore, the Amazon links, the Patreon, however you want to. If you want the info, you know it's out there, but we're done for now. Thank you for being here and listening today. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For all of our guests, it's opening day. Tally-ho!